0: I'm so delighted to be here today to talk to you we got it here. about the menstrual cycle. Oops. There we go. As a barometer for women's health. And when I was first asked to do this talk, I thought, wow, women's health is a huge topic. I needed to narrow it down. And so although I don't feel we should segregate women's health just to our reproductive organs and reproduction, when we think about it from a physiological perspective, we often say she's premenstrual, she's postmenopausal. So we talk about women's health in relationship to the menstrual cycle. The other aspect I wanted to bring to your attention is that the menstrual cycle is often cited as a barrier for including women in research. And if we just take the example of women athletes, when we look at a recent editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, they looked at over 1,000 studies, so 1,382 studies, Six million participants from the years 2011 to 2013, and only 39% were women. And why that matters is because our women athletes are actually more prone to concussion. And when we think about it in relation to the menstrual cycle... If they incur the concussion at a time where their progesterone is high, they have much more difficulty with recovery. And so for that reason, not only should we be including more women in research, we need to actually include more menstruating women. So although I've been interested in practicing women's health throughout my career, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today about this is personal. This is my 14-year-old, concussion-prone, ski-racing daughter. And when she was heading into puberty, I thought, how was she going to experience this? How would my husband, my son, and I, how would we honor her? would we celebrate this? What would this experience be like? So I dove into the reading, and I read books like Laura Owens, Honoring Menstruation, and I came away with a different perspective, and it's that shift that I'd like to talk to you about. So when we think about the menstrual cycle, it's important to look back at our history to get us a feeling of where we are today. And so there's many cultures all over the world that have different views about menstruation. And so when we look at cultures that are live close to the earth and close to nature, they often describe the menstrual cycle as a flower. So metaphorically, women would have to flower um, before they bore fruit, the time was honored, there was a celebration to celebrate the first menstrual cycle. Compare and contrast that to the menstrual cycle being seen as something toxic or contaminating. Um, It was the curse. This was Eve's curse because she partook in the fruit. And so... Up until the 19th century, the menstrual cycle was seen as a way to describe women as inherently weak, a disease, and it might have prevented them from going to medical school. This is Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman in the United States to go to medical school. How do we see it from a medical standpoint? Well, I, have, I had to unlearn this. We tend to make a diagnosis. We tend to want to treat it. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by stopping it. We either medicate it with hormones, or we ablate or remove women's uteruses. Do you know that one in three women in the United States has had her uterus removed by the time she's 65? Yeah. It's not like that in other countries. So it's about one in 18 in Italy. What um, were feminists thinking about the menstrual cycle in the literature is rich here. I mean, there's obviously lots of different opinions, but they tended to downplay the menstrual cycle because they didn't want to be judged. And so something precious is lost when we can't honor this normal cyclic part of us. So here's the menstrual cycle. And when we talk about the menstrual cycle, it typically is 28 days, but it can be anywhere from 21 to 35 days. There's variability within that. So some women cycle like clockwork, others have a little variability in there. Women tend to bleed two to six days. And the amount of blood is about 30 milliliters, which is about eight soaked menstrual products. We divide the menstrual cycle into two phases. So the first half of the cycle is the follicular phase. So this is the starting of bleeding. And then we have this rise in estrogen. Then we have what's called a LH surge or ovulation And if pregnancy occurs, if pregnancy doesn't occur, then we have the luteal phase, which is a more consistent phase, usually about 14 days. It's a time where it's high in progesterone, and then hormones drop, and then we cycle again. And what I want to get across to you is this is a very synchronized, interdependent cycle. It really depends on one thing happening um, for the rest to, to come. A little tidbit also is that women today have about 300 to 500 cycles in their lifetime, and when we compare and contrast that to hunter-gatherers, they had about 100, probably because they were breastfeeding or they were pregnant, but it begs the question of what these, uh, the continuous exposure to hormones, what effect it might have. So from single-cell organisms, to humans, every one of us is governed by biologic rhythms. And the study of biologic rhythms is called chronobiology. We know that when women work night shifts, they're exposed to more night at more light at nighttime. That can interfere with their menstrual cycle. Uh, we see more irregularity. Changes in ovulation and fertility. The lunar cycle, so this is this monthly cycle, has been connected to the menstrual cycle since before recorded history. And there actually is some science to corroborate that. Um, but not very many studies, but a few. And one interesting one I found was that if you put a night light on a woman's bedside stand and mimic full moon, this can, in fact, encourage and promote ovulation and regularity. We know that women's menstrual cycles are impacted by the seasons. We see increased ovarian activity in the summer months, um, compare and contrast that to in the winter where they have less. So I love this diagram in Christine Northrup's book, Women's Bodies, With Women's Wisdom. And she overlays... The menstrual cycle with the seasons and this lunar cycle, this waning and waxing of the moon. And what you'll also notice on there is she has... A You know a time of inspiration so as we're going from spring into summer this is that rising of estrogen that follicular phase um, coming over through ovulation into fall and winter i'm heading into the menstrual cycle a time where women often feel uh, they want to be more reflective they would like to um, be more alone, they perhaps are more uh, honest with their emotions. And so I love this infographic. You know, and another way to, it's just another way to reframe these these regular physiologic functions and stories and narrative therapy um, so stories have, are a time-old strategy used by healers and medicine folk to help people connect uh, and understand their world. And we see this uh, uh, the repeating use of archetypes, so the maiden, the mother, the crone, the archetypes of seasons. They keep recurring in our history, in our art, um, even in modern day, and it's a wonderful way to connect us with our Physiology. And just for example, I'm going to tell you um, the cliff note version of Persephone. It's a Roman and Greek myth. Persephone is the daughter of Demeter, and Demeter is the goddess of everything good on the earth. Her daughter Persephone is violently abducted into the underworld by Hades. Demeter, Demeter is in despair. Sort of all life as we know it ends on Earth, and humans (laughs) plead to Zeus to do something about it. He sends Hermes to go rescue Persephone and bring her back. She's reunited with her mother, however, because she partook in the fruit she ate the pomegranate seeds it was deemed that she must return to the underworld for a certain amount of time and then come up to the light again and this is the simple story of the seasons and yet it's the story of a woman's life it's the story of the menstrual cycle and to me this is such so much more meaningful um to you know this going into the darkness before the menstrual cycle than just hearing, well, your progesterone's dropping and your endometrium's sloughing off. Uh, So it just, um, it really gets into the physiology and connects the psyche. So that's what I love about what I do. I have this huge toolbox as an integrative practitioner. And these are just only some of the tools that I use that I'm going to talk with you today about. So one of the most profound and useful tools in my toolbox is listening. I cannot tell you how effective that has been. It may be the first time somebody is listening to her story. Relaying it back to her, seeing it all out on a timeline, I get emails all the time about the first visit that I've had with someone because it's been so profound for them. I will use questionnaires or diaries if I'm trying to get a sense if there's a cyclic nature to some symptoms that might be going on and I also use things like metaphor and reframing. When we are sitting and listening to women it's important to get a sense of where they are with their menstrual cycle, their beliefs and attitudes you could imagine that someone has, who has been raised or is from a culture where the menstrual cycle might be seen as shameful or something to be hidden or dirty, how that might impact how they're physically feeling. And it's important as healthcare providers and practitioners that we have a positive attitude and speak positively about the menstrual cycle. Nutrition and diet, of course, is a cornerstone of my practice. I have a nutrition and health coach that work with me. And how I approach, my approach is that I generally have a base that I start with. People are, and and we get a sense of where they are. And then depending on what might be going on, I add these nutritional layers in. So, for example, if someone had polycystic ovarian disorder, they had some insulin resistant, I'm really going to have this focus of low glycemic with them. Or if there's inflammation going on, I'm going to see this as an opportunity to talk about anti inflammatory And then there are all these wonderful micro and macronutrients, so vitamins and minerals. And what I wanted to show you with this slide is that there's just not one vitamin that supports the menstrual cycle. You know, I do this for fun at night. I just sort of get on PubMed, and I'll put in calcium plus menses and see how many articles come up. And so that's what's on the left. And on the right are all, you know, the major themes that show up. And in my practice, I might add on some magnesium or calcium if women are having some premenstrual issues or pelvic pain or migraines. And so you could see how um, I would use that in my practice. And then I don't know about you, but with over 25,000 phytonutrients, I needed a way to organize them. So I have arbitrarily broken them down into functional groups, which for me is very useful in my practice because then I just have this go-to actionable suggestion or recommendation. So for example, when I'm thinking about hormone imbalance, I'm thinking about liver detoxification. I'm thinking about, so then I'm saying, you know, we're gonna go to the cruciferous vegetables. We're gonna talk about adding arugula and broccoli in. Or if I'm thinking about hormone imbalance, again, I'm thinking about these phytoestrogens, soy and flaxseed. We know that regular exercise promotes, um, you know, decreases pain and, emotion and um, emotional issues that are related to the menstrual cycle. One of the um, caveats that I will point out, though, is this is when I keep on my radar um, some people who might use exercise as a, uh, as a form of dis- eating, disordered eating. And we actually don't know why exercise improves Um, symptoms that are around the menstrual cycle. It might be because it helps estrogen regulation or glucose tolerance. And then a special category, which will keep on popping up, are athletes. They really need special attention when it comes to um, nutrition and diet and exercise around the menstrual cycle. When we're talking about stress, I think it's important that the woman we're sitting with is not hearing, she thinks this is all in my head. And when I talk about stress and stress reduction, I actually get this diagram or I draw it for women because I want them to see that stress is a whole body experience. We have the perception of a stressor coming in our brain It is then transmitted to every endocrine organ, the thyroid, the adrenal glands, the ovaries. The sympathetic nervous system is activated. Our immune response is activated. So it's this whole body experience. So it's great to have some ways to talk about stress in your toolbox, some easy, actionable things that you can do while you're sitting down with someone. One of my favorite strategies to talk about um, stress is nature therapy. We know that spending time in nature, just up to 15 minutes, can reduce that sympathetic overdrive we see. And in Japan, they are studying the effect of the environment. It's called forest bathing, um, and we see we're seeing lots of clinical research come in to support um, the ability for spending time in nature to reduce stress to improve our immune function and our hormone function so whether it's the aromatherapy from the forest or we're resetting our biological clocks um, nature therapy um, can be so useful and when we're talking about circadian rhythms it's so important to think about sleep We know that if we have too little sleep, too much sleep, or disordered sleep, we can see an increase in inflammation measurable. Um, We can measure high sensitivity CRP and see it elevated. One of my biggest concerns when it comes to women's health is the impact of environmental toxicants and specifically things like endocrine disrupting disorders. So we're talking about things like BPA, phthalates. Women and children are actually, because of their physiology, more susceptible to environmental toxicants. We all have probably a few hundred of them in us right now. They have a generational effect, so a woman who is pregnant who's carrying a a girl fetus, she can impact her potential grandchildren if she is exposed. And we think that environmental toxicants are a reason that we're seeing puberty happen earlier and earlier. So just simply even talking about plastic water bottles, or personal care products can be a start. Social isolation. We know that people who experience social isolation experience more pain, depression, morbidity, and mortality. We need a clan. It's important to start talking to women about their social support. Do they have one? And while we're talking about that, yes indeed, women do um, tend to synchronize their cycles when they live together. I know that because I have three in my house. (laughs) One of the ways I have found to connect the spiritual and physical is by ritual. And this doesn't have to be anything elaborate. This can be as simple as herbal teas. So I will often recommend, uh, with intention, a woman to sit down with an herbal tea, light a candle. And if you're interested in botanical medicines, this is a great place to start. These teas I've listed here can all be found um, under the label traditional medicinals in most grocery stores and even something as simple as raspberry leaf tea i've seen amazing results with regulating the menstrual cycle reducing bleeding um, and so they can be profound so this is a list for you i'm not going to go through it but for your own reference when we talk about menstrual disorders we What we're talking about, is a woman having her period or not? So in an athlete, have they lost, have they stopped having their period? Is the period occurring regularly? Are women, is the bleeding light or too heavy? Is it happening in between? And just um, on that slide, I had a young girl in my, practice the other day who came in to see me for mood issues and she wondered if she needed to be on an antidepressant. And we started talking and I asked her about her cycle. Do you have a regular cycle? Yep. Well, how often are you having it? Well, every 14 days. How much are you bleeding? Well, I bleed for three or four days. Uh, Do you go through how, when to change your pads or tampons? Oh, every two hours. (laughs) And so (laughs) You know, And perhaps she doesn't have, need an antidepressant. She probably needs a, a hormone evaluation and to make sure she doesn't have anemia. So menstrual disorders account for two um, to 5% of um, women in the general population, 2.9 million visits annually, and 60% of athletes report disordered menses. So that is an important group to pay attention to. Women have a lot of other things too, like inflammatory bowel disease or autoimmune disease and migraines, and they can also be exacerbated um, or made better by the menstrual cycle. So here we are with these archetypes again the maiden, the mother, the crone. And I use these archetypes as a jumping off place. You know, I look at them. Um, as opportunities uh, for potential, and I often encourage women to start thinking of a mentor or a role model. And so the maiden, this is this time of wonderful potential and exploration in a woman's life. Typically, I see young women in my practice, and they don't come in complaining about this, but when we're through the history, I find out that they might be having some painful periods or acne. Painful periods are called dysmenorrhea, and it's not uncommon to see this in young girls and women before they've had a pregnancy. It's mediated by prostaglandin 2-alpha, which is an inflammatory mediator. Women with painful periods can have up to seven times the amount of this inflammatory mediator. And when we're talking about painful periods, we want to make sure it's not secondary to something else. So typically, painful periods occur on the first to three days of menses. There can be some backache, leg pain, a feeling, a flu like feeling, and that's these inflammatory mediators. Acne is not uncommon to be associated with a menstrual cycle. And as a holistic and integrative practitioner, we see acne as a reflection of of the whole body, of the whole self. And so how might we talk to this, this young woman? Definitely from a dietary standpoint, I'm thinking this is an amazing opportunity to start talking about nutrition and diet. You know, she um, can buy in because she might be interested in helping her her pain and acne. And so I'm thinking about things like anti-inflammatories. We know that anti-inflammatories, these omega-3 fatty acids, can be helpful with menstrual pain, also with acne. It might be a time to start talking about reducing processed foods, these processed refined carbohydrates. We know that that's associated with acne. We could consider taking dairy out of the diet. That has been one of the most successful things in my practice when it comes to acne. But I also use the Goldilocks principle here. And I will tell you because I um, got burned by this myself um, that we have to be careful with elimination diets in young women. And this may be a wonderful opportunity to start talking to her about um, hygiene, and it might be the first time that anyone has ever talked to her about using a cleanser. Um, I love green tea here topically as a cleanser, but also green tea reduces sebum production. So it's nice to change that out instead of one of those sweet sugary caffeinated beverages. This is also a great time to introduce charting and then just to be there as an anchor or support. This can be a tumultuous time for young women, Um, and you might be a, a support for them. The next phase in a woman's life is the mother goddess. This is a time of giving birth, giving birth to ideas, giving birth to careers, giving birth to children, It's also a time of responsibility, being responsible for children, responsible for employees, responsible for perhaps our parents as well. And so when we're thinking about the Mother Goddess, this is a time where mood issues can come up, migraine headaches. So premenstrual syndrome, there's a big question mark here. So premenstrual syndrome, the important thing to remember here is that it is recurring. So there is this time of feeling good, but then a time of sim- where women are symptomatic. There are over 150 symptoms associated with premenstrual syndrome. They can range from behavioral, emotional, to physical, cravings, irritability, sadness, You know, and it's also important to get a sense of how it's impacting her life. You know, is it impacting work, family? There are a variety of theories and not one of them really explain the whole thing. And then there is this idea, is this a medical or societal construct? Whatever, it's important though to actually validate um, women who do come in um, because it may be a relief for them to know there's a name for this. I love how Christine Northrop parallels seasonal affective disorder with premenstrual syndrome so that time going into the fall increased cravings, sadness, maybe social isolation, but she also points out that this is a wake-up, this is a knock on the door. What is coming up for you each month? What's coming up for you each year? And important to try to figure that out. When we think about migraines, migraine headaches increase in incidence when women start having menstrual cycles to the time of menopause, there's an increased incidence in migraines. They could be purely menstrual migraines, so only during menses, or they could be menstrual related, so worse during the menstrual cycle, but it happens at other times as well. The mother goddess, this is Lakshmi, the mother goddess in the Hindu religion. And when we're thinking about diet for this woman, I would be thinking about elimination and elimination diet. 30% of migraines are triggered by food. We also know that premenstrual syndrome um, can be made worse with things like coffee, refined foods, preservatives. And so I definitely would be thinking about elimination here. When we're... Lifestyle, so important, and this would be a great time to start talking about exercise, stress reduction, support group. This group, I find women in this age they don't take time for themselves. They don't take time to eat well. They're not taking time to exercise. They're not taking time to relax. So perhaps that lighting the candle, a cup of tea, if it's not every night, perhaps it's just as she's heading in toward the menstrual cycle. The crone and the sage, The crone and the sage get such a bad rep in American society. You know, we think of this wrinkled old witch, uh, uh, right? But I think of the crone or the sage as the queen. Um, You know, this is a time, it's a big time of transition for women, but this is a time to become the mentor, a time to become the teacher, to share wisdom, and this is Taromi Lodog. She is an herbalist, a midwife, and a physician, and probably mentor to more women that she knows. So it's not uncommon for women to start to experience heavier bleeding around this time of their life as they're heading into perimenopause. We see um, This happened at the beginning of the menstrual cycle and toward the end as well. We call it dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and it's a diagnosis of exclusion because we want to make sure that there's nothing else going on. So a woman does need to get evaluated to make sure there's no cancer or hormone issues going on. But typically, we can see heavier bleeding. It can be a medical emergency for some women. Um, but I'm talking about, you know, seven to eight days of heavy bleeding, um, a little more irregularity. And often, women, when they go to their physician, they maybe recommend surgery, maybe recommended hormone therapy or ablations. In the women that I'm thinking about in my practice, she did not want this kind of therapy. And so, when we're thinking about guiding them from a nutritional and diet standpoint, I there is an association with dysfunctional uterine bleeding with higher estrogen levels. So, I'm thinking about ways that I can help with that, um, improving our detoxification system with things like um, cruciferous vegetables, broccolis, cauliflowers bringing in these soy phytoestrogens, Uh, the flaxseed and the lignans can be very helpful. And of course, reiterating diet and lifestyle. This can also be, this time I think of um, this transition, it's important to get a sense of where women are with it. Some women are glad to be getting, you know, (laughs) moving on. Um, And others, it can be a time of loss. You know, their children have gone off to college. They've often experienced loss. And it can be a time of grieving and sadness. And it's important to get at that. We're not so great at grieving in our society. And sometimes I think of this as metaphorically as weeping. From a botanical standpoint, I. this, uh, there's wonderful botanical applications in the sense that yarrow, and yarrow tea can be a wonderful addition for women. It's important to also keep have them keep up with their iron, and so um, making sure that they're getting, you know, the spinach, the green leafy vegetables, and iron in their diet. And so when we think about the menstrual cycle, i see it as a window to women's unique biology you know it's a reminder of me to really respect and appreciate the science to have a reverence for this you know mystery um, this wondrous cycle and i see it as a barometer a vital sign on how we look at women and women's health from an individual perspective, but also a global perspective on women's health. So, thank you so much.
1: Menstrual Wellness, a barometer for women's health by Leslie James Andy women's health, not segregated to reproductive organs, relation to menstrual cycle, research. Menstrual cycle through history and culture. Important to take a look at our history. Influence of thoughts and thinking, social and cultural context. Positive. Being or bang ivory, cause or the flower. Euro California or the moon time Navajo quinalda or ceremony Negative pliny something capable of poisoning Hippocratic constitution coldness inability to cook nutrients misogynistic view history recorded by men disease opportunity to treat women as fragile and weak Medicate, medicalization stop it medicate it remove it modern attitudes women's reform feminist movement third wave feminism periodic city and cycling or cyclic nature something precious is lost if we cannot acknowledge and honor our cyclic nature promoting healthy menstruation Her story, belief or attitude, nutrition or diet, activity or exercise, address, stress, environment, community, social, relationship, rituals, her story, listening, timeline, questionnaires, diaries, metaphor, reframing. Menstrual disorders definitions amenorrhea, absence of menses, anovulation, absence of ovulation, dysfunctional uterine bleeding, prolonged excessive bleeding in absence of organic disorder, dysmenorrhea, painful menstruation, hypomenorrhea, sant, regular menstruation, Intermenstrual bleeding, bleeding between normal periods. Menorrhagia, prolonged excessive bleeding. Menometrogia, irregular heavy bleeding. oligomenoria, infrequent menstrual cycle or 35 days. Pisopylocyteic ovarian syndrome androgen excess insulin resistant anovulation cystic ovaries premenstrual syndrome cyclic recurrence of psycho emotional and physical disorders during luteal phase of menstrual cycle menstrual disorders 2 to 5% of general public 60% of outlets, 2.9 million visits annually. Menses and comorbid conditions or migraines, epilepsy, bowels, disease, autoimmune disease. Cases: Maiden, the mother or the goddess, the crone or the sage. The Maiden, discovering potential exploration. The Maiden, the 14-year-old with painful periods and Acne. Dysmenorrhea, primary versus secondary, inflammation mediators. Acne, reflection of overall health. Topical and systematic. The Maiden, diet, nutrition, lifestyle, hygiene, charting, anchor or support. The Mother or the Goddess. Giving birth, ideas, children, careers, responsibility. The mother, goddess, 36 years old with mood changes six days prior to her cycle. History of migraines. Migraines, menstrual migraines, menstrual-related migraines. The crone, or the sage, sharing wisdom, transition, and letting go the crown or the sage 49 years old experience heavy heavier flow dysfunctional uterine bleeding diagnostic of exclusion excessive prolonged unpatterned adno ovulatory the crone or the sage diet nutrition lifestyle transition appreciate the science and have a revenge for the misery
2: Female cycle period menstruation whatever you want to call it is a profound cleansing process that you get to experience every month it's a chance to clear out the old and bring in the new both physically and mentally in Ayurveda it's revered as one of the most powerful tools for renewal for women and crucial to health and happiness a lot of women hate their periods and see them as something they simply have to deal with every month But I'm here to tell you that a healthy cycle is a sign of vibrant physical health and it's important to make sure it's balanced. In this lecture, you're going to learn five key nutrition guidelines to balance your cycle and improve your health. If you experience a lot of cramping, bloating, a heavy flow, intense PMS, acne, other symptoms common in women, using the nutrition tools we give you in this lecture, will help you lighten your flow, lessen cramps, clear up your skin, and feel more calm and present, not agitated and angry. Here's the thing, as a woman you ebb and flow, your body is biologically designed to be productive certain times of the month and get deep rest at other times. Your period is one of the times of the month that you'll want to rest and get plenty of nutritious, delicious food raw chocolate too. When you embrace your unique rhythm, you can leverage the times when you're biologically programmed to be productive and fully embrace and relish the times you're meant to relax and take care of your complex, strong, yet delicate system. Food changes everything and today we're going to support you by guiding you to avoid foods that contribute to frustrating monthly symptoms. 1. Remove processed foods from your diet. This is the best thing anyone can do for their health. The challenge here is that many people think they're eating clean, but they're actually still eating a lot of processed foods. So today, do a little survey of your daily diet, kitchen, and cabinets. Are packaged yogurts, granola, and cereal bars sneaking in on your daily diet? What percentage of your food has no label at all, for example, vegetables? Aim to mostly eat food that doesn't come in a package at all. This simple step will greatly help in balancing your hormones and bringing your body back into alignment. 2. Take synthetic hormones off your plate. Continuing to eat meat and dairy that's pumped with hormones is one of the biggest blunders women can make when they're trying to regulate their menstrual cycle. Hormones from food can lead to heavier flow and more cramping, mood swings, and even ovarian cysts. Choose grass-fed, local, clean meat and dairy, and notice the difference in your monthly cycle. Three, evaluate dairy products in your diet. Dairy is one of the biggest contributors to cyclical imbalance. As a mucus-producing food, it clogs the respiratory and digestive system. It makes your monthly cycle heavier and more uncomfortable. It can also contribute to cystic breasts and acne in many cases. Four, pick your proteins wisely. Protein is in an area where bioindividuality really comes into play. Some people notice a lot less cramps and less heavy, more comfortable flow when they stop eating animal products. I know other people who were dealing with amenorrhea, or lack of period, and it instantly returned when they started eating high-quality animal protein. When choosing protein, make sure it's always grass-fed, local, and free of hormones. Experiment with vegetarianism, or even veganism, if you choose, and just observe how these different eating styles make you feel and how they affect your menstrual cycle. Five. Get honest about fat. Lack of high-quality fat in the diet is linked to poor skin health, lack of period, hormonal imbalance, ovarian cysts, and a slew of other common women's health issues. It's important to remember that fat is your friend, not your foe. Adding avocado, olive oil, and even grass-fed butter can be very helpful when balancing your female cycle. The concept that fat makes you fat is old science and simply untrue. Which of these five dietary guidelines appeal most to you? When you check in with your gut instincts, what do you think your body needs most to come into balance? Choose the guideline that speaks to you most and start experimenting.
1: Nutrition for the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle. Often associated with bloating, moodiness, cramps, and pesky hormonal breakouts can be a frustrating time for many women. Fortunately, there are few simple dietary changes that may help reduce the severity of symptoms experienced each month. 1. Remove processed foods from your diet This is the best thing anyone can do for their health. The challenge here is that Many people think they're eating clean but are actually is is still eating a lot of processed foods. Do a little survey for your daily diet, kitchen, and cabinets. Are high yogurt, sugar, granola, and cereal bars sneaking into your daily menu? What percentage of your food has no label at all, like vegetables? Aim to mostly eat food that doesn't come in a package. This simple step will greatly help in balancing your hormones and bringing your body into alignment. 2. Take synthetic hormones off your plate. Choose grass-fed local and clean meat and dairy without added hormones and notice the difference in your monthly cycle. Hormones from food can lead to a heavier flow, more crumping, mood swing, and even ovarian cysts. 3. Eat plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables are generally a great source of fiber, vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients, which may help reduce symptoms and severity of PMS. 4. Pick your protein wisely. Bioindividuality comes into play in a big way with protein. Some people notice a lot less crumbs and higher more comfortable flow when they reduce consumption of animal products. But women who are dealing with am- amenorrhea or lack of period may find that eating high-quality animal proteins help period to return. When choosing protein, opt for grass-fed local and hormone-free when possible. Experiment with a more plant-based diet and observe how these different eating styles make you feel and how they affect your menstrual cycle. 5. Get honest about fat. The concept that that fat makes you fat is simple and true. Lack of high quality fat in the diet is linked to poor skin health, amenorrhea, hormonal imbalance, ovarian cysts and slew of other common women's health issues. It's important to remember that fat is your friend, not your foe. Adding avocado, olive oil, and even grass-fed butter can, very, can be very helpful when balancing your female cycle. Good fats, especially omega-3C, help reduce inflammation which can be particularly useful in reducing crumping.
2: Have you ever felt like you were on someone else's schedule rather than following your own natural rhythm? You might be letting your kids, husband, partner, or even roommates influence the flow of your day, but it might also be a broader prescribed rhythm that you're just going with instead of actually listening to your body. You know, the one you see everyone else subscribing to. Wake up early, maybe work out, go to your job, work hard all day, eat lunch over your desk, get off late, have some wine, a late dinner, go to bed, and repeat. Here's the truth. That doesn't work for everyone. And that type of schedule, more often than not, has a negative effect on female hormones. If you're dealing with chronic fatigue, low sex drive, intense PMS, cystic acne, even mild depression and other random symptoms, going against your natural rhythm might be the issue. In this lecture, we're going to guide you through five ways to balance your hormones through primary food. We'll discuss nutrition for women's health in another lecture, a very important subject too. Through the process of balancing your hormones through primary food, you'll naturally begin to live in harmony with your female body instead of dragging yourself along on someone else's agenda. The result? You'll start feeling more energized and vibrant than ever. First, let's discuss mindset. A lot of women feel like they need to keep up with other people. If you don't feel like partying four nights a week after a 14 hour workday or exercising for two hours every single day, you might feel like there's something wrong with you. And you might even beat yourself up or feel ashamed or lazy. I'm here to tell you that ignoring your body's signals and writing them off as laziness is not productive or helpful, and it actually drains your energy even more. The mental weight you put on yourself, like shame and judgment, are just as draining, if not more draining, than a long to-do list. The female body is naturally incredibly fine-tuned, designed for deep relaxation and self-care at certain times of the month and linear productive work other times of the month. You ebb and flow, and when you embrace your innate rhythm, you can leverage the times when you're biologically programmed to be productive and fully embrace and relish the times you're meant to relax and take care of your complex, strong, yet delicate system. Now that you know your body is designed for periods of focused work and times of relaxation, not meant to be pushed and pulled in a million different directions every day, Let's discuss the symptoms that commonly appear when you have been pushing your body rather than honoring your limits and taking impeccable care of yourself. 1. You're exhausted. 2. Your sex drive is nowhere to be found. 3. PMS is more intense than usual. 4. You feel guilty, ashamed, and and or depressed, sometimes for no particular reason that you can pinpoint. 5. Cystic acne starts appearing, especially around the jawline and chin. Six, you're gaining weight around the middle of your body. Do you have any of these symptoms? Maybe more than one or all of them? Take a few deep breaths and remember that your body has the power to heal itself by itself. Now, let's begin to gently yet powerfully heal the body through primary food methods that bring your female body back into balance. One, empower yourself. When symptoms pop up, it's easy to get scared. There might be a bigger and more complex issue going on, or feel like you're broken and you can't heal. The first step to healing is acknowledging that nothing is inherently wrong with you. Even if your health is not perfect right now, there's nothing wrong with you and you're not broken. You are whole exactly as you are. From the place of love, compassion, and confidence in your body to heal itself, you can get curious about what's going on for you and tap into the endless toolbox that is primary food. Embodying the mindset that you are healthy now and you can become even healthier takes a huge weight off your shoulders and allows your body to naturally reach health. Two, get real about rest. Sleep is a requirement for good health. So no, I don't recommend that whole sleep when you're dead mantra. (laughs) Actually, your lifespan is likely to shorten if you don't sleep enough. So are you chronically exhausted, trying to push through the day? Maybe you're actually tired. Most women dealing with chronic fatigue are actually type A. They get so worn out by their natural drive to do, do, do. Try to just be. Start with weekends. Let yourself sleep as long as you want. Then you might notice that you naturally wake up without an alarm clock during the week. Everyone is exhausted to a different degree. What I ask is that you listen to your body and sleep when you're tired. Some people will be healed after one long deep sleep while others might need to take some serious time off to come back to balance. Three, balance your nervous system. Most modern people spend most of their lives in the sympathetic nervous system state, aka the fight or flight or stranger danger zone. That feeling you get when someone creeps up behind you and surprises you, or, less likely for most people, when you're getting chased by a bear. Here's the thing, your body doesn't know the difference between those literal stressors and chronic work-related stress, or stress that stems from difficult relationships. When your body is in this sympathetic state, it can't repair. When you're relaxed and calm, your body is in the parasympathetic state, literally referred to as the rest and digest system. This state is brought on by sleep, laughing, meditation, Qigong, Reiki, and even intimacy like cuddles and sex. Your body has to be in the parasympathetic state to heal and evolve. The more you can activate your parasympathetic nervous system by relaxing and having more fun, the healthier you'll be physically and mentally. 4. Evaluate exercise. It might surprise you, but sometimes the harder you work out, the more stress you actually put on your body. Depending on your constitution and condition, you may actually need gentle exercise like yoga and tai chi. I know a woman who was chronically exhausted, had cystic acne, and continued to hold on to excess belly fat until she stopped running 10 miles every day and started doing qigong and yoga. How crazy is that? Certain forms of rigorous exercise trigger the stress response, so make sure you balance your hardcore workouts with yoga, meditation, or even dance. You might even discover that you only want to do these more gentle practices. Experiment for a few weeks and see how your body responds. Five, embrace the power of community. IIN visiting teacher, Lissa Rankin, often cites a study on a group of Italian immigrants living in Roseto, Pennsylvania, who only eat lots of meatballs fried in lard, pizza, and pasta with generous amounts of wine. Oh and they're all smokers. And guess what else? They're some of the healthiest and longest living people on the planet with half the rate of heart disease of nearby communities. The group of doctors who conducted the study found that the only relevant factor was that the people of Rosetto were never lonely. Community has a powerful influence on personal health and developing a community of people to support you is crucial to balancing your hormones. When you feel alone and isolated, you're more likely to overeat, feel depressed, and lack love and connection in your life. Humans are meant to live in community. It's natural and necessary. Reach out to three people this week who you'd like to deepen your relationship with, and notice how it impacts your energy and physical health over the next few months. Remember bioindividuality here. Everyone has their own formula for optimal health. A unique blend of primary food and secondary food that makes them feel amazing. To recap, we discussed the mindset shifts needed to heal your hormones through primary food. Next up, we discussed six common symptoms of hormonal imbalance. Then you learned five core primary food methods to balance your body and get your hormones happy and humming. Reflect on the five tools we've discussed and then choose one to act on this week. After one is fully integrated or you decide it's not part of your unique formula for health, add in another one. Enjoy your unique healing journey and I'll see you soon.
1: Balance your hormones through primary food. Have you ever felt like you were following someone else's schedule rather than your own natural rhythm? You may be letting your kids, husband, partner, or even roommates influence the flow of your day. It could also be a broader prescribed rhythm that you're going to with instead of listening to your body. Here's the truth. One rhythm does not work for everyone. Following someone else's schedule more often than not has a negative effect on female hormones. If you're dealing with chronic fatigue, low sex drive, intense premenstrual syndrome, cystic acne, mild depression, or other random symptoms going against your natural rhythm might be the issue. By working to balance your hormones through primary food, you'll naturally begin to live in harmony with your female instead of bragging yourself along on someone else's agenda. The result, you'll start feeling more energized and more vibrant. Evaluate your mindset. A lot of women feels like they need to keep up with other people. If you don't feel like partying for nights a week after a 10-hour workday, or exercising for two hours every single day, You might be thinking there's something wrong with you. You might even beat yourself up or feel ashamed and lazy. Ignoring your body's signal and writing them off as laziness is not productive or helpful. It actually drains your energy even more. The mental weight you put on yourself like shame and judgment is often more draining than a long to-do list. The female body is naturally incredibly fine-tuned. It is designed for deep relaxation and self-care at certain times of the month and linear, productive work at other times of the month. Here are some symptoms that commonly appear when you have been pushing your body rather than ignoring your limits. 1. You're exhausted. Your sex drive is nowhere to be found. Your PMS is more intense than usual. You're gaining weight around the middle of your body. You feel guilty, ashamed, and are depressed, sometimes for no particular reason. Cystic acne is starting to appear, especially around the jawline and chin. Read on to learn how to heal your body through primary food methods that bring your female body back into balance. 1. Empower yourself. When symptoms pop up, it's easy to feel like there might be a bigger or more complex issue going on your broken and can't heal. The first step is healing is acknowledging that nothing is inherently wrong with you. You are whole exactly as you are. From a place of confidence in your body's ability to heal itself, you can get curious about what's going on for you and tap into the endless toolbox that is primary food. Embodying the mindset that you are healthy now and you can become even healthier takes a huge weight off your shoulder and allows your body to naturally reach health. 2. Get real about rest. Are you chronically exhausted, trying to push through the day? Maybe you're actually tired. Starting with weekends, let yourself sleep as long as you want. You might notice that you wake up naturally within an alarm clock during the week. Some people will be rejuvenated after a long deep sleep while others might need to take some serious time off to come back into balance sleep is requirement for good health listen to your body and sleep when you're tired three balance your nervous system most modern people spend the majority of their lives in sympathetic nervous system state aka the fight or flight stranger danger zone that feeling you will get when someone creeps up behind you and surprises you or perhaps less likely when you're getting chased by a bear your body doesn't know the difference between those literal stressors and chronic stress related to work or different relationships when your body is in the sympathetic state it can't repair when you are relaxed and calm your body is in the sympathetic state referred to as the rest and digest system this state is brought on by sleep, laughing, meditation, keygoing, Reiki, and physical touch with a loved one. Your body has to be in parasympathetic state to heal and evolve. The more you can active your parasympathetic nervous system by relaxing and having fun, the healthier you'll be, physical and mentally. Number 4. Evaluate Exercise It might surprise you, but sometimes the harder you work out, the more stress you actually put on your body. Depending on your constitution and condition, you may actually need gentle exercise like yoga or tai chi. Certain forms of rigorous exercise triggers the stress response. So make sure you balance your hardcore workouts with practices that are easier on your body. Gentle exercise might include yoga, meditation or dance. You might discover that your body responds really well to these gentle exer- gentle practices. Experiment for a few weeks and see how your body feels. Number five. Embrace the power of community. Community has a power to influence on people's health. And developing a supportive drive is crucial to balance your hormones. When you feel alone and isolated, you're more likely to overeat, feel depressed, and lack of love and connection in your life. Humans are meant to live in communities. It's natural and necessary. Take some time this week to experiment with more rest, relaxation, and community connection. Remember. There is nothing wrong with you. Your body innately knows how to heal itself. You are healthy and taking empowered steps to become even healthier.
3: Hi there. Today we're going to be talking about healing and harmful foods for hormone health. While you may not realize it, hormone health is critical to our overall health and well-being. For example, Hormone imbalances and the resulting health issues are becoming increasingly more common. About 20 million Americans have thyroid disease and about 30 million people have diabetes, both of which have a major impact on hormone function. So what are hormones anyway? Hormones are chemical messengers that send signals that allow for communication across the body so that the processes we need to survive can be carried out. Hormones are what regulate critical functions like sleep, stress, and reproduction. Hormones work together in an incredibly complex system. Like a row of dominoes, when one gets off balance, it affects the next one, which can then trigger the next one, and so on. So while there are many different hormonal conditions, each of which require their own balancing protocols, it's always important to look at how to create hormone balance overall in the body. Now, while there's no one-size-fits-all approach to creating hormonal balance, there are some tips and recommendations you can suggest to your clients that will generally help support better hormonal health across the board. As an integrative nutrition health coach, you understand the value of adding in and crowding out. So let's first start with healing foods that can be incorporated into any diet to support healthy hormones. Here are some foods that can do wonders in maintaining a good balance of hormones. The first, fruits and veggies. Anything natural and unprocessed is great for the body. Fruits and vegetables are loaded with vitamins and minerals, which are extremely important for supporting hormonal health. Vitamin and mineral deficiencies can lead to a variety of unpleasant symptoms and health concerns, including those related to your hormones. The second, organic foods. Consuming organic foods, especially if you are consuming meat and dairy, is essential for a healthy balance of hormones. Think about it. Conventional meat and dairy is often loaded with added hormones and toxins, things that don't really support a healthy system. Paying extra for organic meat and dairy now may save you greatly in the long run. The third, local foods. As close to the source as you can get it, local foods do the body good. This could mean growing your own food, investing in community supported agriculture, which is also called a CSA, or shopping for locally sourced meat, dairy, and produce. Talk to your farmer about growing practices and the types of fertilizer, herbicides, or pesticides that may or may not be used. These chemicals can accumulate in the body and may negatively impact your hormones. Knowing where and how your food was grown is an important step for keeping the body in a state of hormonal balance. And lastly, healthy fats. Fats are the building blocks of hormones. Getting regular doses of healthy fats will help your clients to build beautiful, healthy hormones. A low-fat diet, which was once very popular, can actually make it harder for your body to produce the hormones it needs. Healthy sources of fat, such as olive oil, ghee, avocados, and nuts, will give the body what it needs to keep your hormones pumping. Now that we've talked about what to add in, let's talk about some of the foods we should be crowding out. Many of these are going to sound familiar to you. After all, health is holistic. What's good for your hormones is good for your overall health. Here are some foods that should be avoided as much as possible. The first, processed foods. As author and food activist Michael Pollan says, if it comes from a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't eat it. A diet filled with processed foods is associated with chronic diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. The second, sugar. By now, I'm sure you're aware of how much damage processed sugar can do to the body. Sugary foods cause a spike in blood sugar followed by a sharp decline. Unregulated blood sugar can become type 2 diabetes over time. Too much sugar in the diet can also throw off a woman's estrogen balance, which can lead to menstrual problems. The third, caffeine. While you may have recently heard about coffee being good for you, too much caffeine can still negatively impact your hormones. Caffeine stimulates the adrenals to secrete cortisol, a stress hormone. High stress and a lot of caffeine can lead to inflammation and can affect glucose tolerance. The fourth, excessive amounts of alcohol. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a drink every now and then, but overconsumption will definitely impact your hormone balance. Alcohol puts a strain on the body, particularly the liver and frequent consumption is associated with impaired fertility and blood sugar regulation. While these dietary recommendations generally hold true across the board, keep in mind that bioindividuality is still crucial when working with clients to support their hormone health. Work with your client to make these changes, adding in and crowding out, and then check in with them to see how they're feeling, what's working and what's not working. In addition to what you eat, how you eat is so important. If you're eating from plastic containers or you're eating in a really stressful environment, these can impact your hormones as well. Aim to use glass or ceramic containers whenever possible. And take the time to sit down, chew your food, and eat slowly. There is so much that goes into hormones, and this is just the beginning. If you're interested in learning more about hormones, hormone health, and how you can support clients in this area, you might want to check out the Hormone Health Course. It's a continuing education course we put together for integrative nutrition health coaches who want to work with clients specifically on hormonal issues. Learn more about the course at www.hormonehealthcourse.com.
4: Hey everybody. What a cool, warm welcome. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to being here with you, because you're in a field that's changing the world. It's absolutely what we all need. So here's my role model, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And this is a group of um, Tibetan physicians surrounding him. In 213, I had the really great privilege of going to Dharamsala and being one of four Western scientists in dialogue with Tibetan physicians, philosophers, and astrologers. If you go to medical school in Tibet, the astrological school and the medical school are bound together, which is pretty interesting. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about ancient wisdom, modern science and psychology and how it relates to health and also to health coaching. So we've got a lot to do and I'm going to get right to it. So when I was asked to talk about mind-body medicine, you can't really talk about the body without talking about the mind. And the very first understanding of mind-body medicine came really during wartime when a nurse ran out of morphine to give to injured soldiers. And her heart was just broken. Can you imagine to be on the battlefield and to have nothing, nothing to give? And so she gave them injections of salt water. And it turned out that it relieved their pain and that's called the placebo effect, you know, what we really believe in it actually manifests physically in our body, and this is from my favorite medical journal, which is Time magazine these days, you can like get terrific information, and we're all familiar with looking at brain scans, and simply what this one shows is it's a placebo study of pain, and people getting a placebo have Less pain, let's see if we can point that out, the pain area is much smaller with a placebo than without. And so a placebo is real. People often think something psychosomatic is imagined. It's not imagined. It has reality in our physical body. So I want to talk a little bit about what you do. In terms of dietary change, coaching, and the placebo effect, we all have to eat. And it's amazing how we're so used to whatever we eat and generally resistant to eating anything else. And when somebody makes a big change in their eating habits, they're going to generally get better, even if it's not the right diet for them, at least for a little while because doing something big like that, a tremendous behavior, brings forth the placebo effect. And so it's so important to recognize that and use it in your health coaching, because people are going to feel better. And what's great about IIN is you really have a personalized approach. And you all know already that what is a good diet for one person may not at all be a good diet for another person. And just knowing that puts you so far ahead, because you can really work with people and uh, bring the placebo effect into it. But here's the other thing. As a healthcare coach, you have a tremendous effect through your own kind presence. Your ability to see people, even if it's on the phone, Uh, with your voice, with the way that you listen, with how you interact with people. Because it turns out, in terms of modern-day psychology research, we understand that kindness, care, and the therapeutic presence is probably just as important as anything that you actually have to teach. And the only way to develop that presence is to have it inside yourself to view yourself with the kindness, with the care, and with the compassion that you want to give to other people. So we're going to look at how to do that. This healing is all about relationships. So we hear a lot about pets. And this is Mr. Milo, one of our two standard poodles. And that's my husband, Gordon, who's probably like really embarrassed right now in the audience. it's early in the morning before his hair was combed, I think. <laughs> but that's an example of healing presence. Pets are so popular in America these days and there are so many studies because the relationality we feel with a pet is that we're not being judged, we're being loved, we're being seen. and. That's what we want to do, is unleash our inner dog in all of our therapeutic relationships. (laughs) So, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine started, oh now, maybe 20 years back with, we all used to joke, homeopathic (laughs) levels of funding, which have generally grown through time as an understanding of mind body and spirit has come forth and i think they captured the heart of coaching in their very original website so they defined mind body medicine as focusing on the interactions among the brain the mind the body and the behavior and that it researches the effects of emotional, mental, social, spiritual, and behavioral factors on health. And there is a tremendous amount of research these days that we can call upon. The fundamental guiding precept of mind-body medicine, and I would, by the way, say coaching is a form of mind-body medicine, is respect for and enhancement of each person's capacity for self-knowledge and self-care. And that's the fact we all have it within us. When we have the right information outside, we start to pay more attention to all of the subtle cues inside that tell us what we need to do to really strengthen our body and our mind, our health, and our happiness. So the mentor education, you're all mentors. So I wanted to spend a word, uh, a moment on the word educate, which comes from a Latin word, educare, And what that means is to bring out from within, instead of the model of teaching by pouring in something from the outside. It's our job as health coaches to bring something out within each person. So the field views illness, and in this case, you have a lot of people who want health coaching to avoid illness or to recover from illness, and that's an opportunity for personal growth and transformation. And the view of healthcare providers is that they're catalysts and guides in that process. What an incredible calling, don't you think? It just is wonderful. And that's, of course, my calling. That's what I've done for many, many years. And it is, I think, the most satisfying kind of life purpose. So this is now a famous question in health coaching. It's so simple, and yet it makes a tremendous difference to both client behavior and the stories that we tell ourselves about health. I'm going to talk a lot about narrative. That's a big word. Right at Columbia, there's a program in narrative medicine, which is pretty amazing. And it's for anybody in the healthcare field because essentially helping somebody change their story is what changes their life. Your life is all about the stories that you tell. And this is a very, very simple question that helps people change their story, and it's this. Is there anything you'd like to do in the next couple of weeks that might support your health or your well-being? And that's an example of bringing out something from within. Asking somebody so they have to search inside and really think about, what is it? that they could do? And it turns out that simple question is gold. I wanted to talk a little bit about human caring and compassion, since that's the subject we're on. And it's a big aspect of mind-body research, which is what I was actually invited here to discuss. So when we are cared for, when somebody sees us with the eyes of kindness and compassion. When we feel deeply respected, it reduces stress. It's really hard to feel stressed and seen at the same time. At the same time, caring and compassion stimulate our pleasure system. And we have a tremendous pleasure system in our body. And what I tell people is health should feel like a pleasure if you're eating right for your own personalized nutrition for your own physiology what you should feel is not like you're wearing a hair shirt you should feel pleasure and uh the pleasure system so if somebody is doing this in the right way and seeing you you'll have more endorphins you will have more endogenous cannabinoids although i lived in colorado during the big change i can tell you there you can get exogenous cannabinoids on every street corner Uh, it increases your endogenous morphine dopamine oxytocin vasopressin and nitric oxide which is not laughing gas nitric oxide actually relaxes the blood vessels uh in the heart and and allows you to have lower blood pressure and a healthy circulatory system. Care and kindness decrease anxiety and depression. And isn't that a big deal? Because I can't believe there'd be a single person here who has not just eaten to calm ourselves down. And we know if we're stressed, that's when we eat junk. That's when we eat too much. And so the very thought that somebody cares for you, listens to you, brings out the best in you, releases you from some of that kind of uh, anxiety and depression. It also enhances motivation. And isn't that what we're after? Uh, For people to be motivated to make a big change in their behavior and to make positive choices is enabled by our very presence. And of course, that increases well-being and decreases physical symptoms. So I had to say a word about dogs. <laughs> I'm completely a dog fanatic. Uh, there's there's a, in psychology today a very cool guy by the name of Alex Korb, who uh, writes really wonderful columns. And he pointed out this, that men who have heart attacks have a 5% chance of dying in that first year after their MI. But if you have a dog, the decrease, the risk decreases to 1%, which, by the way, is even better statistically than being married. So <laughs> petting or playing with a dog releases all those feel-good hormones, the endorphins and the dopamine and the oxytocin. And that's important because oxytocin, which is the, the bonding hormone, that's what makes, makes it possible to take care of a baby and to love a baby when they're really a lot of trouble. Um, that wonderful hormone will decrease stress, lower blood pressure lower heart rate, and just tune up your autonomic nervous system to a state of balance and equanimity. And and that's what we want. The body has an inner balance, and that's what we're really trying to educate, to bring forth. So how do we encourage success in our clients? Um, who here has ever changed your diet and then had a massive slip. <laughs> and the question is, what do you say to yourself when you have a massive slip? Because they're perfectionists. They slip once, and that's the end of it. They just say, well, my God, I'm a jerk. I can't do this. This is stupid. Then they stress themselves out, and they feel so bad that they, they keep on eating more to calm themselves down. And it's a vicious cycle. And so this is really an important question to ask your clients. Like, what do you say to yourself if you've had a slip? Because we all know if you can just say to yourself, I had a slip, that's normal, that's human. Um, I'll get back on track tomorrow. You're fine. But there's a whole science of this. It's the science of attribution theory. And I want to just talk to you about that for a few minutes because it's so crucial. So if you've studied some positive psychology, you might know the name of Martin Seligman, who was the founder of positive psychology at University of Pennsylvania. And... He distinguishes pessimism, people who are pessimistic and helpless from those who are optimistic. And you can tell if you tend to become helpless and if you have a pessimistic explanation of why bad things happen. I kind of call this the Woody Allen effect. And <laughs> so uh I'll give you a really brief example from my own life. When when my kids were, oh, 10, f- that one was 10, one was 14, my stepdaughter was visiting, who was 15. We had gotten a boat. And uh, this was a story. And Kate, you just saw my husband, Gordon. Uh, We've been married for 13 years, but I'm going to tell a story that involved my husband, whose name was (laughs) If you don't remember anything from the lecture, you'll remember that, won't you? So, my my husband's name was Slavi, short for Miroslav, so, and we're good friends. He doesn't mind my telling this story at all. Uh, And what, what, what happened, actually, is he was out of town. We lived in Situate, Massachusetts, right on the North River that lets out into the Atlantic. It's a tidal river. We'd just gotten a boat. And my son, Justin, who was uh, about almost 15, said, Let's go boating. But Sloppy was out of town. And I looked at Justin and I said, I don't know anything about boating. I can't take your kids boating. And if any of you guys remember being about 15, you will totally relate to this. He looks at me, filled with newly minted testosterone. <laughs> and He looks at me like I have two heads. He said, I don't expect you to take us boating. I go boating with my friends all the time. I can take us boating. I'm the captain of the ship. And I'm looking like, oh my god, oh my god. And he says, don't you trust me? And I said, I guess I do. And so I'm thinking. What's to it? You pull the little rope and the motor starts, you have a rudder, you go. And this works all the way out to the ocean. We have a fabulous time. But I am a little perplexed because I'm noticing red and blue buoys like bobbing everywhere. And I say to Justin, my son, what's with the red and the green barrels floating? And he looks at me and he says, I don't know. (laughs) So, So everything is fine because we had gone out and the tide was high. When we came back, the tide was low. And almost instantly, we ran aground on a sandbar. So this is a minor negative event. But human beings react the same to an event from a parking ticket to, God forbid, cancer. Um, we have we attribute why does, uh, reasons, stories. We're back to stories. What's your story about why something bad happens? Well, people who tend to be helpless, and these are the people who are hardest to coach, people who tend to be helpless are pessimistic. And what they do is they attribute they attribute things in, in, in terms of what Seligman calls the three P's of pessimism and helplessness, personal, pervasive, and permanent. So I'm going to give you the moment when I realized I was a pessimist and learned to change my story. This was almost 30 years ago. It was 30 years ago now. I had just heard Seligman talk. Aren't you impressed with synchronicity? How when the universe wants you to learn something, something amazing happens. So I've literally just heard a lecture of his the same week that this happens. And I start to notice myself. Self-awareness, the key to change. And I'm I'm there, we're on a sandbar. And my inner dialogue goes something like, expletive, 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 (laughs) expletive. i can 't believe how stupid I am. What kind of stupid mother takes a kid 's boating when she knows nothing about boating? You could have killed them. Mm-hmm. I know a working mother that 's who <laughs> working mothers. this is terrible. I just what can I do they 're going to need twenty years of therapy to recover from me. <laughs> And it's hard to be a working mother because you're not a good mother and you're not good at work and I have a grant due and if the grant doesn't get renewed, my God, I'm going to get fired. I won't have any grant money. I should be in the laboratory. Right now, I should be in the laboratory and my marriage sucks too. So (laughs) Now, if you have a client who has a slip in what they eat, and they have the Woody Allen effect going on. They need to know that and you need to know that. You need to be looking after that. Personal, I blamed myself. Pervasive? It wasn't that I was stuck on a sandbar. It was my whole life was wrong. And permanent means you're really stuck in a rut. You cannot imagine how it could be elsewise because that's your story and you're sticking to it. Now, uh, there's another researcher. I think she's actually still at maybe um, uh, City College of New York by the name of Suzanne Kobasa. She studied stress hardiness. And I'll, I'll do this very quickly because we have a lot to cover. But uh, what she discovered is, and, and she was looking at this time with uh, another psychologist, Salvador Maddy, at corporate people in corporate positions. And they were looking at a company that had undergone divestiture, so people didn't know am i going to have a job is everything going to reorganize what's going to happen and we're studying upper management some people were stress hardy and other ones really caved either they got sick physically and we all know that roughly 80 to 90% of doctors visits are for stress related disorders stress is the biggest problem we have in our healthcare system actually but people got stressed out and so they developed the headaches, the stomach aches, everything else. Of course, emotional eating, substance abuse, all of those things begin to happen. Um, If you're stressed out, your one glass of nightly wine can easily turn into a bottle of the same and we all know how that works too. So what she found is that some people thrived under stress. Now, I want to get back to the boating story for a minute. My son, Justin, is a person who thrives under stress. Because there was I, caught in this total um, Woody Allen effect thing that was going on for me. And meanwhile, Justin, I look at Justin, he's got a big, broad smile. He's thrilled, actually. And he says to me, Mom. This is the best day of my entire life. (laughs) And I looked at him and said, why is that? And he said, because I am the captain and it's up to me to rescue us, which he did in about 90 seconds it had to do you know rolling up the pants pushing at the boat i don't know something about casting the anchor but we were off the sandbar momentarily and i'm thinking oh and he was demonstrating what kobasa said instead of a threat people see a challenge and that's what you want as a health coach um to help people be stress hardy and see the challenge in changing health habits that are hard to change. And to see the challenge and to stay, the control means staying with what's really happening. Instead of, I was trying to control my whole life, Justin was trying to control just one thing, which is getting off the sandbar, which is a lot more pertinent to the situation. And then Commitment means staying engaged. So how do we get somebody to stay engaged? And the first thing is to listen closely to people's stories. And what what do you see there? And to be able to help people to, to look for another story that is a more empowered story. Because if you change your story, you change your life. So, I wanted to cover for you a little bit of early determinants of what determines your story. And often when I'm talking about mind-body medicine, which was my charge today to give you an overview of this field, I find that people don't know this set of studies. And so I wanted to make sure that we covered them. And they're called the ACE studies adverse childhood experience. These studies bridge the gap between childhood trauma and negative consequences later in life, because it turns out that the strongest determinant of health is what happened to you as a kid. And um, this was research done by a really compassionate, kind, and caring physician at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And that HMO keeps really good healthcare data on people, which is uh, terrific, so they can go back and look. And then he teamed up with this guy, Robert Anda, from the Center for uh, Disease Control in Atlanta. These are beautifully done studies. And Felitti said, how do we take a child, a perfectly healthy, happy child, and turn gold into lead so that you end up with somebody who has terrible health habits, who doesn't take care of themselves? And how how did that happen? That's the question. He found out that it's highly related to adverse childhood experiences. That study enumerated a number of them. First they looked at six, and then they added another couple to have eight. But uh, there are things like having violence in your household, or having a parent who's incarcerated, or having a parent who's depressed, or having a parent who has an addiction, or having one parent. And boy, that's common, isn't it? Uh, having one parent and or of course abuse and neglect, sexual molestation, uh, physical abuse, and so that's that's about the eight but a male and you just add them up so a male child with an aCE, which again is adverse childhood experience, a male child with an ACE score of six is forty six hundred times more likely to become an IV drug abuser. So you don't need to be a statistician to see how important that is. An A score of four. And by the way, I had an A score of four. My mother was a very genteel alcoholic. There was some abuse from a service person. My father was depressed. And you added them up. I had quite a lovely childhood, actually. But I still had an A score of four. And that increases the probability of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease by 390%. And I was addicted to cigarettes for years and years and years because they calmed down for me an inner sense of anxiety. And I think we see that all the time. And why wouldn't people want to comfort themselves? Isn't that, isn't that what we're after? And so I think it's so important. To let go of the judgment we have about people's health habits as we're trying to bring forth health from within them. An A score of four or more also raises the probability of depression by about 500%. And an A score of four or more raises the probability of suicide by over 1200%. These are huge absolutely huge things and so oftentimes it's good to know because people tell themselves stories about their childhood victimizations and their stories that can eventually be changed. Uh, When I was hired to do this talk uh, one of the suggestions was that I would talk a little bit about gratitude and forgiveness which I will shortly because it turns out that forgiveness is all about changing your grievance story. And uh, for example, abused women who leave emotionally abusive relationships usually have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have increased anxiety, increased depression. And what happens is Of course, it's natural to review your grievance story, like what that low-down, dirty dog did to you. And the more you do that, the more you traumatize yourself. And in one study, they asked women instead to look at the strengths that it took to get out of that relationship and to focus instead on the story where they were the hero, the heroine of their own journey, benefit-finding and it made all the difference. And if you can just think about that, to ask somebody in any circumstances, what were the benefits of going through this difficult time? Then they start to search inside, and a very different story emerges. Just a a little bit of mind-body information, the question You know, why does somebody with a high ACE score uh, have a very shortened life and a lot of physical problems? One of them is telomeres, which have been a big subject of mind-body research in the last 15 or 20 years. And if you think about your chromosomes, uh, the little end caps, kind of like the little plastic things on shoelaces, are keeping your chromatin from unraveling. And they're necessary for cell division. And as your telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter, your cells can't divide and renew themselves. And that has really amazingly unfortunate consequences. The shortening of telomeres necessary for cell division um, causes things. It's, It's associated with an increase in cancer of all types, depression, pulmonary fibrosis, dementia, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis. And a woman scientist by the name of Elizabeth Blackburn at the University of California in San Francisco actually won a Nobel Prize for this work. And it's interesting to note, as health coaches, that exercise is a big deal in protecting your telomeres. And we all know too that health, health behaviors tend to go together. If somebody is interested in changing their diet, they're usually interested in getting more exercise and doing all of those things that make them healthy. I wanted to talk a little bit about stress, negative emotions, and pro-inflammatory cytokines. Big word, but you see it everywhere. Again, Time, my favorite medical journal, about three years ago, its cover story was about inflammation. And why is that? Because inflammation is the final common pathway for virtually all disease. And we have in our body our own immune system, makes something called cytokine. It's just a, a protein made by a lymphocyte, uh, more than that, but it, it's, a, it's a molecule made by a lymphocyte that promotes inflammation. Because if you got a splinter, you want to have inflammation there. If you have uh, infection, inflammation helps your body defeat it. But that's in, in an acute sense. When inflammation becomes chronic, The fire that's ever burning in your body, it has unfortunate effects. So sometimes you'll be reading maybe a paper on nutrition. You'll come across the word IL-6. It actually stands for interleukin-6. And it's simply one of these chemicals that's active in causing inflammation. And it is increased by both physical stress and emotional stress. So one of the things that, as a health coach, you can't help but coming up against is emotional stress and helping people through your presence and what you say and through your information to reduce that stress. When somebody is anxious or depressed, that also increases the production of their pro-inflammatory cytokines. What we know is inflammation, as I've said, is related to almost all illnesses. Uh, It's a commonality in heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, aging, cancers, and really almost all chronic illnesses. So once again, just your presence reduces stress. Uh, and you know how people people get nuts. I looked in the mirror this morning and I said something like, oh my God, my thighs, what's happening? Soon I'm going to look like an avocado on legs. And <laughs> I stole that line from my friend Loretta LaRoche, who's a great humorist. Uh, and it's stressful, isn't it? When you start to criticize your appearance and think, if only I looked this way or that way, then I would be happy. That's stress. And so it's so it's so important for us all to recognize that we want our bodies to be healthy. But being compassionate toward our bodies in whatever shape they are in is very important. You know, there's a wonderful story about a nurse who had Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and she was already in a wheelchair. And she realized that all her life she had hated herself, that she had hated her body, that she had picked on herself for how she looked. And she just had this intuition, she had this insight, that if she could just find something good about herself, um, before she died it would be a big step forward so she started this practice of looking in the mirror in the morning and I may have this slightly wrong but I think this was this story the only thing she could find about herself that she liked was her long eyelashes that was it and so she would sit there and appreciate her long eyelashes after a while She was thinking, well, you know, actually my skin is pretty nice. And she made a practice of this, these tiny little things. And while this is certainly not going to happen for everyone, it happened for her. She actually had a spontaneous remission of ALS and is out there teaching. She's a nurse teaching about health today, which is an amazing thing. And so it's very, very important as health coaches to encourage people to find the good things about themselves instead of always being criticizing things that they don't like. That reduces their stress. One of the mind-body things now that has become very popular is this, and that is that Our stress comes not only from what we're saying to ourselves, it comes not only from all the things going on in the outside world and our response to them, but it also is heritable. Um, Trauma can be inherited for up to four generations. Just this year, we knew this in animal studies, but just this year the definitive human study came out that showed this, and what you see here, these are 12 of my relatives who died in Auschwitz. I'm gonna cry. I'm sorry. As a child, I was aware of the fact that I had relatives who had died in that concentration camp in Nazi Germany, but it was just a piece of disembodied information. About six years ago now, a relative who I'd never even met sent me this by email. And I looked at it, and I said, my God, it's my family. This was my grandfather's brother, and he looks exactly the same as my grandfather. They could have been twins. This little girl looks precisely like I did at that age. suddenly i realized oh my god and i thought i had always been very easily stressed and yes you know i had my a score thing but as i studied psychology i always said to myself john you're more like a trauma survivor um a serious trauma survivor i wonder why that is and it turns out this is why it's heritable and Even though my parents weren't in the Holocaust, their parents came from Russia because of pogroms. Uh, I have a long history. And many of you, anybody here who's African-American, you've got a good history of trauma going, too, uh, in your family. Anybody where there has been genocide or slavery or uh, even a parent who had a very, very hard time That's going to be in there, and that becomes also part of one's story, but it can be changed. So why is trauma heritable? Well, because of epigenetics. So there's an entire new field, and this has a lot to do with nutrition, because, well, we'll get to why in a moment, Uh, I'm sure you've, you've studied some of this already. But it turns out we don't just have one genome. We actually have three going on. We have 99% of our genes come from our gut bacteria. Uh, that, as you know, is probably the most rapidly growing field in all of medicine, is the understanding that we're primarily microbe rather than human. We have a measly 10 trillion mammalian cells, but we have about 100 trillion bacterial cells. And most likely, we're just a house for another life form. <laughs> so that humbles you. Anyhow, the, the epigenome is a second genome. And then the genes we get from mom and dad, that's our third genome. So what's the epigenome? What is epigenetics? Here's just a really simple definition. The human genome, thank God, is pretty constant. It changes really slowly over millions of years. And that's why a human baby today looks like a human baby 100,000 years ago. It doesn't look like a snake or a platypus or a hippopotamus. It looks like a baby. Uh, But here's the deal. The environment around us is changing all the time. And so the science of epigenetics explains how our genes can adapt to change in the environment, even though the actual structure of the genome, the genes themselves, don't change. And I'm not going to go into a zillion details here, other than to say, if you unravel a chromosome My god, you've got six feet of DNA inside of a tiny little cell. That should be a tangled mess. But fortunately, it gets coiled around these proteins called histone proteins. And these proteins have little tails that stick up. And molecules from the environment, methyl groups and acetyl groups, bind to those tails. And like a methyl group will come along It will bind to that tail, and look what will happen. Uh, The chromatin will suddenly unwind from the spools and be available for making protein. And so that's the question. Are your genes open and active, open for business, or are they all coiled up? So that's what epigenetics is, and there are epigenetic... Marks or tags, uh, methyl groups, acetyl groups, generally these go away when the egg and sperm form. But in the case of trauma, the marks don't go away. They stay. But if you look at what is it that affects the epigenetic mechanisms, what goes on if your mother is really stressed when you're in utero, that's a big epigenetic mechanism. What she eats is huge. Pesticides are enormous epigenetic uh, uh, moderators. So are drugs and pharmaceuticals. Aging and diet is huge. Methylation goes on all the time. It's an ongoing process in your body, and it has to be going right because it helps repair DNA, and it regulates that whole epigenome. It does things like it controls homocysteine, which is an important risk factor for atherosclerosis. And we have to have it going right in order for the body to reduce inflammation, to detoxify chemicals, and to stabilize mood. and. Uh, Food is a very, very big part of that. People are always saying, food and mood. How can food affect stress and emotions? And the answer is very easily, because what you eat affects your epigenome. It also affects the microbiome. What you eat (laughs) turns out that your gut bacteria are producing the lion's share of your neurotransmitters. that And that has everything to do with whether you're anxious, depressed, even stress-hardy. And also, um, food has some direct effects on the nervous system, and one of them is pleasure. N- nobody is going to eat food that tastes lousy for more than a few days, so food, food has to be wonderful. Food is like... I think as we're waiting to be born, we're probably all excited that we're going to some plane of existence where you get to eat. This is like a wonderful thing. So there is out there, as some of you know, a whole diet based on epigenetics, and it involves eating a lot of colored uh, vegetables, and particularly greens, because the word folate and foliage have the same root. and. The, this is part of your body's methylation system, is folate. So it's great to have plenty of greens. Now, now we're finding other things. This is our friend Chris. Uh, Chris and his wife Catherine and Gordon and I went out to dinner at this very cool Indian restaurant in Santa Fe where we live, and look at this yogurt dish, a whole mandala of yogurt. And not only does it look beautiful, Chris is clearly thrilled, Uh, but recent studies have shown that women who eat two cups of yogurt a day have actual reduced anxiety, so we know food affects mood. So just a word about gut bacteria and emotional balance. So gut bacteria synthesize, as I said, the lion's share of neurotransmitters. And some examples are GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid. GABA is so important because it actually is what's called an inhibitory neuropeptide. And what it inhibits is activity in the amygdala. So it inhibits the fear system. It inhibits anxiety. Uh, dopamine is the reward hormone, and serotonin is necessary for mood balance. Gut bacteria also affect neurotransmitter metabolism. How long does that stuff stay around, you know, once it's there, and regulates the blood levels of neurotransmitters. Gut bacteria communicate with your vagus nerve. and. Uh, The vagus nerve is very important. This is called the gut-brain axis. But for example, if you are a calm coach, if you do your own exercise and meditation and eat in a good way and tell stories to yourself that reduce your stress, what is going to happen is that the vagus nerve of one branch, and it has three branches, runs to your face, and you're going to have a safe People who have safe faces make terrific coaches and great therapists because of our mirror neurons. I look at a face that's safe, my whole autonomic system relaxes, and my mind opens. I'm willing to listen. And so it's just so important And to think that your gut bacteria can affect how safe your face looks. Now, that's like pretty amazing, isn't it? It's like, we're learning so much. Then your gut bacteria actually are they're the first level of your immune system that protect you from the outside world and differentiate your own self from all that stuff out there that's not yourself. And it communicates and trains. They train the immune system. That's a whole new field of research. And a lot of the research involves something called... A brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is made in the brain, and it's been so exciting for the last 20 years when we realized, oh my god, the brain reorganizes, it's plastic, you can learn something new and you develop a whole new brain pathways, and it's BDNF that allows that to happen, it allows your neurons to... uh, re-restructure themselves and grow. And it's increased by certain things, like a Mediterranean diet that's rich in nuts, vegetables, fish, colored fruits. It's um, it's increased by turmeric, which is my all-time favorite thing. I'm always like taking turmeric as a supplement, cooking with turmeric. Everything is yellow in our house. Uh, <laughs> Omega-3 fatty acids increase BDNF, so do walnuts and avocados, so does a relatively low-carb diet. Thank God, so does coffee. There's a God after all. (laughs) Fasting and calorie restriction, oh well, you can't have it all, but you can do these other things instead. (laughs) But what decreases BDNF? diets that are high in saturated fat, eating a lot of refined carbs, and having a sedentary lifestyle. So we all know this, that the standard American diet and our plugged-in lifestyle creates depression. And although we may network electronically, social support, the caring of one for another, is actually one of the most important things for our health. That's where we started to come back there because we as coaches can give people amazing, unconditional, positive regard and help in that way. So I wrote a book uh, about a year ago, it came out about a year ago, called The Plant Plus Diet and it's really about living a personalized lifestyle. And that's another thing that I love about IIN, as I said in the beginning, is the emphasis on studying different diets, and I want to make a very long story very short. Um, my husband Gordon, this was now six or seven years ago, found he had a little calcium in his artery, arteries, and I said, no problem, we'll get that plaque out of there, we'll go on a low-fat vegan diet. And that works for many people. I'm sure you know the research. It certainly worked for President Clinton, at least apparently. Looks to be in much better heart health. But it didn't work for my husband. He actually developed metabolic syndrome. And his triglycerides went through the ceiling. And I developed galloping hypertension. I was on three medicines. And I said, what on earth is wrong with this picture? because we were like religious fanatics about that diet. And I thought that would be a great diet for everyone. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'm a scientist. I'll go to the literature. I spent three years reviewing the literature on nutrition, which, as you all know, is the world's worst literature. Scientifically, it's like unbelievable that this passes for science. I could lecture for three hours just on how bad the literature is. And finally, I I came to the absolute conclusion, diet is personalized. What is good for one person is not good for another person. A lot of it has to do with insulin sensitivity. And both Gordy and I, we can't eat too many carbs because it reduces our insulin sensitivity. We pile on weight. And also it raises the blood pressure. And so we couldn't do that diet. And what I do find is very unfortunate is people who treat diet like it's a religion. It's not a religion. Um, If you want to be a spiritual person, you should notice and be mindful with this is what creation gave me. This is the body I have. And I have to take care of this body in a way that makes it healthy, not make somebody else healthy. Uh, People always are asking, His Holiness, if he believes in ahimsa and nonviolence, how can he eat meat? And he always says, I can't help it. I live in a place where not very much grows in Tibet, and my body needs meat to live. And I'm so glad he eats it because the planet's a better place. So it depends. Some of us need to be vegans. Some of us need uh, some protein. And we can be a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. Some people really are obligatory carnivores. And the basis of it all, though, is mostly we need to be eating plants. That's the main thing. Plants and lots of greens are uh, most important thing to eat. Let me say a few things about spirituality um, as we prepare to wrap up here, that spirituality is hard to define. I have a, a very dear friend, a physician, Rachel Naomi Remen, and what she said is religions are bridges to the spiritual, but the spiritual is beyond religion. And I like to think of spirituality in terms of its fruits. If you think you're a spiritual person, but you're a Grinch all of the time and totally miserable, um, you've missed the boat somewhere along the line. So there's a wonderful psychiatrist at Harvard, Dr. George Valiant. And he wrote a wonderful article that you can get as a free PDF on the internet. And it's called Positive Emotions, Spirituality, in the Practice of Psychiatry. And he defines spirituality as a cluster of eight positive emotions. Awe, love, trust, compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, joy, and hope. And this, when you feel these kinds of emotions, don't you feel connected to something greater than yourself? and you can you can feel that something greater in every cell within your being instead of feeling isolated and separated you feel part of the family of things for me awe in particular we live in new mexico there's magic light at sunrise and sunset and i just start to cry and it's like all the boundaries drop and there's that sense of connectedness, and spirituality is a very important part of healing. There's now, of course, a whole literature on it, and a lot of, of, of the literature on spirituality shows up as cognitive neuroscience, because feelings and thoughts work together. So that we can integrate the brain, we can create new meanings for our traumatic events, calm down our worry circuits, and build resilience circuits. So, let me just zoom to I already told you about forgiveness uh, as an example of narrative medicine, and forgiveness is so good for your health. Uh, I'm gonna, I know you'd like to see these, but. You will, because you'll have the set of slides. Uh, I always do this, aren't you? Just just close your eyes and focus on absorbing all the information. I wanted to say a word about gratitude, though, because as coaches, gratitude is so important. I learned years ago. Um, the importance of gratitude through a wonderful teacher, David Steindl Rast. He's a Christian brother, actually. And he said, every night before you go to bed, give thanks for one thing you've never thought of being thankful for before, which means you have to be mindful during the day. You have to be on the lookout for things that suddenly touch you, for that view of the mountains in the magic light for that smile of somebody. Uh, (laughs) Because it's such an amazing thing when a face lights up with a smile. What an extraordinary thing. Whatever it may be. And what he's a great teacher of mindfulness. And what he said is, if you make this deal with yourself, just think of that one thing before bed. The result is that you're mindful all day long. And that, by the way, here's the research, will increase your alertness, your enthusiasm, your determination, your attentiveness, and your energy. Isn't that what you want to bring forward in the people that you're coaching? It increases your tendency to help other people. It increases your sense of connection to others. It helps you sleep better. It reduces your stress. And it creates more optimism which, in turn, helps immune function. And I'll just end by saying that there's a lot of really interesting neuroscience out there, and that, in particular, there are six things that are most important to creating a healthy, optimistic brain. And those six things are changing your story reducing your stress, increasing your exercise, and Mm -hmm. eating right for the physiology of your own body. Also, being out in nature, because that's what reduces so much of our sense of separateness and brings back that spiritual connection we have with something larger. So, in conclusion, I just want to say, How cool IIN is and how wonderful that you're all doing this work and what a privilege it's been to spend an hour with you. Thank you very much.
1: The Cutting Edge of Mind-Body Medicine Immunology, Neuroscience and Nutrition in Service of Health and Happiness by John Borisenko, PhD, Institute of Integrative Nutrition. The Dawn of Mind-Body Medicine on Onzillo Beach by Henry Beecher FMRI study of subjects receiving electric shock who were told they were getting a pain reliever cream, Activity brain areas involved in sensing pain decrease Dietary change, coaching, and the placebo effect Succeeding in the difficult tasks of dietary change has a positive placebo effect as well as a psychologic effect you as a health coach can also be a positive effect through care kindness and respect healing it's all about relationships ncc am mind body medicine focuses on interactions among brain mind body and behavior researchers effect of Emotional, mental, social, spiritual, and behavioral factors on health. Fundamental guiding, preserve, or precept is respect for the enhancement of each person's cap- capability or capacity for self-knowledge and self-care. The mental function educare. The field views illness as An opportunity for personal growth and transformation and healthcare providers as catalysts and guidelines in this process motivational interview question that changes behavior is there anything you'd like to do in the next couple of weeks that might support your health or your well-being this simple question changes both clients behavior and their narrative about their health human caring and compassion antagonist to stress stimulate pleasure system decrease anxiety and depression enhances motivation and positive choice increases well-being decreases physical symptoms dogs and health Men who have heart attack have a 5% chance of dying in the first year post-MI. If they have a dog, their risk decreases to 1%. Petting or playing with a dog releases oxytocin, dopamine, and endop- endorphins. Oxytocin decreases stress levels, lower blood pressure, and lower heart rate. Encouraging success. Notice how your clients frame their dietary slips. Optimism and pessimism. Attribution theory and motivation. Susane kuguela Kobasa, Martin Seligman. Stressful events challenge me to change the groove. It's my own fault. I mess up everything I do. And it's the story of my life change your story change your life what are some of the early determinants of outlook on your life and the stories that we tell ourselves the ACE study adverse childhood experiences bridges the gap between childhood trauma and negative consequences later in life turning gold into lead male child with ACE score of six has thousand six hundred percent increase in probability of IV drug abuse ACE score of four percent increases probability of three hundred ninety percent telomeres and shorter in children who have been abused stress makes it harder for the body to renew itself the shortening of the Telometers necessary for cell cell division and renewal of associated with an increase in cancer, depression, pulmonary fibrosis, dementia, osteoarthritis, and osteoporosis. Elizabeth Blackburn at UCSF. Exercise Protest telometers stress negative emotions and pro-inflammatory cytokines depression and anxiety also increase al-6 production inflammation is a commonly in heart disease diabetes osteoporosis aging cancer and most chronic illness trauma can be inherited up to four generations The epigenome, the human genome is fairly constant and changes very slowly over million of years. On the other hand, the environment around us changes all the time. A science called epigenetics explains how our genes can adopt the changes in the environment even though the actual structure of the genome, the genes themselves don't change. Mithylation is an ongoing process. Helps repair DNA. Regulates the epigenome. Controls hymocytocin. Necessary for detoxification. Reduces inflammation. Mood stabilizer. How can food affect stress and emotions? Changes the epigenome. Changes the microbiome. Which, is, which in turn helps regulate emotions, has direct effects on the nervous system. The epigenetics diet, foliate, and foliage have the same root. Yogurt can decrease anxiety, gut bacteria, and emotional balance. Synthesis neurotransmitters including GABA, dopamine, and serotonin affect neurotransmitters metabolism and regulates blood levels communicate with vagus nerves or your gut brain axis communicate with immune system which in turns communicate with the brain and nervous system BDNF is increased by Mediterranean diet which is rich in nuts Vegetables, fish colored fruits, curcumin, omega 3 fatty acids, walnut and avocados, low carb diet, coffee, fasting, and calorie restrictions. BDNF is decreased by diet high in saturated fat, refined carbohydrates, a sedentary lifestyle. The standard American diet or SAD and plug in lifestyle creates depression and although we may network electronically social support is critical for both immunity and neural health plants plus personalized lifestyle positive emotions and healing positive emotions spirituality and practice of psychiatry by mensona monogram this paper proposes that eight positive emotions all love attachment trust which is faith compassion gratitude forgiveness joy and hope constitute what we mean by spirituality these emotions have been grossly ignored by psychiatry spirituality is not about ideas sacred texts and theology rather Spirituality is all about emotions and social connection. Our whole concept of psychotherapy might change if clinicians set about enhancing positive emotions rather than focusing only on negative emotions. Cognitive neuroscience? Feelings and thoughts work together so that you can integrate the brain. By creating new meanings for traumatic events, you can calm down your worries circuits and build resilience circuits. Letting go of grudges Holding on to grudges against self and others' causes Anxiety, paranoia, narcissism and callousness toward others Psychosomatic symptoms Heart disease Incidents of psych or physical illness, depression, forgiveness, an example of narrative medicine. Forgiveness and health. Unforgiving persons have have increased anxiety, paranoia, narcissism, psychosomatic symptoms, heart disease, incidents of physical activities, depression, and addiction. Forgiveness is for the givers, anger is like a hot coal you pick up to throw at somebody else but it's you who gets burned by Otama Buddha. Hatred is a bouquet until you realize that you are the main chorus. by Herbert Benson. Letting go of the grudge is a way to return to the peaceful center inside you by Frederick Luskin, former director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project Daily gratitude exercises increase alertness, enthusiasm, determination, attentiveness, and energy Increased tendency to help others Greater sense of connection to others Better sleep, less stress, more optimism, increases immune function one brain two minds midbrain instinctual pleasure seeking fear avoiding non-reflective recreative or reactive survival circuits prefrontal cortex thinking goal oriented reflective does this choice help me realize my long-term goals and plans the resilient brain the army armigada is the region that sends out signals be afraid be depressed be on your toes for sign of of danger and when those signals are going full blast it's very hard to be resilient so the prefrontal cortex basically says to be um says to the amygdala quiet down and when it's able to do so, people are able to be resilient. The activation of the left preferential cortex in a resilient person can be 30 times that of someone who isn't resilient by Sharon Begley. The Calmer Downer Circuit GABA. GABA immunity butyric acid. Is an inhibitory neuropeptide made in the orbitomedal prefrontal cortex. When released, it turns off the alarm raised by the amygdala and calms the subcordinal areas, body, brainstem, and limbic system. Approach and integration. People with mindfulness awareness or with mindful awareness training have a shape in their brains toward an approach state that allow them to move forward rather than away from challenging situations. This is the brain signature of resilience. Making a left shift? happy is here. What are the brain shifters? Mindfulness, meditation. Mental training techniques such as slogans, reframing cognitive behavioral approaches, exercise, breathing, nutrition.
5: Hi, I'm really excited to share with all of you out there. This is a a topic I'm really passionate about. Um, And so why don't we dive in? The first uh, thing that I want to talk about is Why use social media? You know, social media has really exploded. And I remember when it was first starting to get big, the question was, should you use social media? And this was a huge debate that every business was having. You know, should we devote resources and time to this new upstart thing? There's no one really debating that anymore. Everyone agrees that you do need to be using social media if you're in business. But I think there's still a lot of confusion as to why. you should be using social media. One of the most powerful reasons to be using social media is that it's incredible networking for people in your industry and people who can impact your career. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to network, you either had to join some kind of club or um, some networking group in your city and you could network with business people in your city or you'd have to apply to a conference uh, to, to network with people in your industry. But now, you can network from your bedroom. You can network in your pajamas if you want to. And not just with colleagues, but in my experience, social media is an incredible way to connect with influential people in your industry. Uh, You're in IIN, so you're learning about the importance of choosing a niche, choosing uh, a focus area. Whatever your niche is, there are influential people, experts, who are in that area who you want to know and social media is I think one of the best ways to connect with them. I'm going to be talking about how to do that a bit later in this talk but right now I just want to present that I think that's one of the most powerful reasons to use social media. Uh, another reason is what I like to call the surround sound effect. And the basic idea that surround sound effect is that people need to hear your name or your business name a number of times before they want to do business with you. It's not that common that they'll just hear your name and they'll say, great, what do I sign up? There needs to be some kind of awareness over time. I've heard a statistic that it takes seven impressions of your name before someone takes action. Someone needs to hear about you seven times on the internet before they take action. The so social media is a great way to get those seven and beyond times in. and when I say surround sound, what I mean is that there's multiple channels. We're going to be talking about Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Those are just a few of the channels we'll be focusing on in this call. And of course, there's many more. So if there's, a, there's a surround sound effect that goes on. Uh, the third reason that I think is really important is to dominate Google real estate with your name. You know, before Google was around, before the Internet, there was really only one kind of real estate, and that was, real estate we're all familiar with, owning your home or your place of business. And what's happened now is that there's a new form of real estate that's as important, if not more important, and that's the real estate around the search terms related to you and your business and your topic. And particularly, if people are searching for your name uh, or for your business, you want to have a total presence on Google results with your name. And having lots of different social media profiles allows, it's almost like a spider's web. (laughs) Anywhere they go, they're gonna get caught into your web of influence on the web. And the more social media you do, the more effect that has. And the last reason, you might be surprised if this is the last, but I think it is, is to get customers and clients. In my experience, I'll be honest here, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, social media actually isn't the best avenue for Converting people into paying customers. Uh, I think your website is actually best avenue for that, and we can that could be the subject of a whole other class. Now you might ask, well, why should I do it then if it doesn't actually necessarily convert people right away into customers? Well, as we've been talking about here, there's a process of turning someone into a customer, and that takes place over time. And I think social media. Is a really important in that process, in the early stages of the process, to build awareness about you, to build trust, to build credibility, and then you move into your website, which actually converts them into the client. Uh, so, you know, you, there's a lot of stuff out there. Get rich through social media and that kind of stuff. I don't really believe in that. I, I don't think that that's what social media is about. Nonetheless, I think it's incredibly important, and we're going to be seeing all of these important on this call. So we are ready to go to uh, our next topic, which is um, that you should use social media under your name, not a business name. This is one of the number one questions that I get from people when they're starting out a business, especially when they're a sole proprietor, meaning it's just them in the business. It's just you. They say, should I use my name or should I come up with a business name? I'm very passionate that you use your name. Uh, and the reason it's pretty simple is that in general, just think of yourself. Do you prefer to interact with individuals or with Facebook businesses that are tied to an individual? In our own lives, we usually choose that we want to interact with individuals. So here's a scenario I would just you, and this is point two. Uh, imagine that. Imagine two scenarios about your business. Let's say you are someone who helps people with digestive health, for example. Imagine one of your clients referring you to their friend who has a digestive health problem. And they say, imagine one of two scenarios. Let's say your name is Jane Smith. Imagine they say, um, you know, there's this great. There's this great person, let's say your name is Jane Smith and your business is, uh, I'm just making this up, you know, Fresh Start Digestive Health. Are they going to say, hey, there's this amazing business you need to work with. It's going to solve all your problems. I know you have digestive problems. You know, I can't remember what the person's name was, but the business was called Fresh Start uh, Digestive Health. You should go look them up. Is that more likely or is the opposite more likely? that they're going to say, oh my gosh, there's this amazing woman that you need to work with called Jane Smith, who is a master of helping people with digestive health. She has a website, I can't remember what it's called, it's like Fresh something or other, but her name's Jane Smith, look her up, you've got to work with her. Those are two scenarios, which one do you think is more likely? My suggestion to you is that the second one is much more likely, that people tend to remember your name. They tend to remember you as a person and not, not your business. Um, the one exception I would make is if you have a really, really, really catchy business title. Uh, you know, some people just have a knack first or a business name that just snaps, and everyone says, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing! I got to go with that." That's actually quite rare. I'm actually not very good at that myself. So I think for the vast majority of people, if you're going to choose a kind of a uh, generic sounding name like I just made one up like Fresh Start Business or you know Alive and Well or you know, just those kind of generic sounding wellness names. Those are very they're generic. People tend to forget them, but they don't forget your name. And that's why I think it's really important to use social media under your name. We're gonna talk about you may have some objections to that. You may say, well, I'm a private person, I don't want people knowing so much about me personally on the internet. I think that's a valid concern. Uh, The third reason why I think it's really important to brand under your name is that ultimately, if there's one thing we know for sure, it's that your business is gonna, your professional life is gonna last as long as you last, and I hope that's a long time. So you're gonna be around for a while. You don't know if this specific business that you're in right now is going to be around forever. You'll know maybe you'll change interest, or maybe you'll develop a new passion and you'll want to change direction in your business. That's very likely. Most people change careers and change directions at one point or another of their focus in their business. So you want to be always building up real estate on Google around your name because there's one thing we know for sure, and that's that you're always going to be you and you're always going to be out there doing your business. So those are my top reasons. For using social media under your name, the biggest mistake I see with social media is that they don't get that social part of it. They think that it's just like any other kind of media where you're broadcasting. So they think, well, uh, I have all this, I have this audience, I have this followers these followers. Why don't I just give them offers for my business? Why don't I give? Why don't I tell them about my business? Why don't I tell them about my latest sale or my latest discount? And it's the kind of broadcast mentality. That's really not what social media is about. And if you do that, you're probably not going to get a lot of results in your social media efforts. The main thing to keep in mind with social media is that you're showing people aspects of a lifestyle. I am a firm believer that the number one reason people hire a coach is that in some sense they aspire to that coach's lifestyle. They want to be that coach in some level. So if it's a business coach they're hiring, there's something about that that person's business they want to emulate. If it's a personal trainer that they're hiring, there's something about the way that personal trainer is with physicality that they want to emulate. And in your case, you all are health coaches. There's something about the way you live that your clients want to piece up. You may find that hard to believe, but as you grow your business, you'll see more and more of this that people are looking to do for leadership, given that that's the case, you want to show them who you are. You want to show them the whole spectrum of who you are. We all have private lives. We all have things that we keep to ourselves and our family. But the more that you're comfortable with really developing a persona online, that's reflective of your full spectrum of passion in the real world, the more you're giving people access to a real person and not some faceless corporation. As we said, people want to do business with a human, with a person, not a Facebook organization or a company. So the best way to do that is just share with them your passion. So on through Twitter, through Facebook, which we're gonna be getting into the specifics in just a moment, some of the things you can share you can let people know about the kind of music you're really passionate about. You can let people know about the latest movie you saw and what you thought about it. One of my favorite things, because I'm an author, is to let people know about the books I'm reading and, and the books I really care about. Um, if you travel, you can post pictures of your travel and, and your adventure. And uh, one, of, one of my mentors, a woman called Danielle Laporte, She said, your life is content, your life is content, which means because your clients are aspiring to you, they're aspiring to your lifestyle, that means that your lifestyle is content. So if you go to some amazing class and you learn something new, that's content, you can share what you learn. If you travel somewhere and you're really excited about what you travel to, that's content. Um, Obviously, funny videos, again, you want to keep it clean, you want to keep it professional, uh, obviously, we all find on YouTube videos that make us laugh. These have great, the little tidbits that make people laugh are great things to share. that just add personality uh, to your to who you are. I have a saying: your brand is what people think when they hear your name. There's so much confusion about what the word brand means, and there's millions and millions of books uh, on that topic i distilled it here to one sentence that I think gets to the heart of it, and that is your brand is what people think of when they hear your name. So if they think you know, adventurous, edgy, cutting edge, that's your brand. Uh, if they think more kind of um, wise, kind of wise elder, if, uh, let's say you're um, speaking to um, you know, grandparents or mothers and you're an older person and you kind of have that. Brand as the wise older person—that's your brand. Whatever that, whatever people think of when they hear your name, that's going to be your brand. So a brand bubbles up from all this content. Now, of course, you should also be tweeting about your topic or Facebooking about your specialty, whether it's digestive health or wellness, uh, weight loss or fitness, whatever it may be. But that's kind of obvious. So I'm kind to here expand and broaden, uh, you know, what what you realize is appropriate to be um, sharing in social media. So why don't we dive in now to the actual services. Uh, And I'm going to teach you now about how to use Twitter. I have a soft spot in my heart for Twitter. Of all the social media outlets, it's my favorite. Um, I love Twitter. And so I'm going to show you a bunch of different uh, angles here on how to use Twitter um, and what it's about. Uh, basically, there's a lot of different reasons, ways to use Twitter, a lot of different types of tweets. I use my own Twitter handle, Michael Ellsberg, my own name is my Twitter handle. Um, I have a bio there. I'm going to talk in a moment about how to create compelling bios, uh, but the bio is really important. It links to my website, and there's all these different kind of tweets out there. So. A really easy way to get involved with Twitter is to do what's called a retweet, which is to just find something that someone else has tweeted uh, that you think is interesting and retweet it with their name. And you can actually spend a lot of time just doing that. And it it kind of shows people what you're interested in. And this gets back to the connecting with PowerPoint influential people. People love when you retweet their stuff. So if you're retweeting some famous uh, expert stuff that's in your field, you're going to really like that and you're going to be able to build a relationship with that person. And I've met many, many people just by retweeting their stuff. Um, we've got public dialogue where it's kind of like I am in that messaging, except that all the world can see. It. Now you may say, well, that makes me really scared. I, don't, I wouldn't want all the world to see my I am. So you just got, have to be cognizant that this is a public forum. So you're going to, you, again, you have to keep it appropriate something that, Everyone is going to see, but if you tweet things that are appropriate for everyone to see, that's a great way for people to see all sides of you and see really get your personality out there. Um, another category is what I like to call deep thoughts. Um, I have a classic one of mine <laughs> that I came up with one day in the shower. It says, "I'm an insignificant speck of dust in the cosmos, but I keep on chugging." And people love that. That got retweeted like hundreds of times. And so, whenever you just have one of those deep philosophical thoughts, maybe when you're on a jog, or you know, when you just when you wake up, or in the shower, or in the bath, you can go and, and tweet them out. And, and again, it shows another side of people. Um Commenting uh, on other people's content again is a great way to connect with people. Uh, obviously, staying in touch with customers and your fans and you will start to have fans once you really put your personality out there. Um, great way to do that uh, through Twitter and I put last, promoting your own content. It's sort of like television, on TV they spend millions of dollars to make these amazing shows and then most of the time spent airing those shows and then they put some ads on there too. Now, if if it may be in a half an hour, it'll be 20 or 25 minutes of content and five minutes of ads. Imagine if it was 25 minutes of ads and five minutes of content. It lose all their viewers overnight. So there's a reason they put way more content than ads and that's to keep people's attention. And the same should be true of you when you're doing social media. Yes, you should promote your own business, you should promote your offers, but most people or a lot of people only do that and they lose all their viewers, because that that would be like the TV channel that only has that. No one would watch it. So you want to promote your own stuff in social media, but you want to do it uh, in the context of offering a lot of other value and a lot of other content uh, that is giving value. So now we're gonna move on to the, the most familiar social media outlet, which is Facebook. So it used to be that there was there was your personal profile, which is like where you share your pictures of uh, you know, drinking margaritas on Saturday night at the party that you only your friends that you would share with. And then there was, if you had a business, a page, which was supposed to be your public space to the world for your business. And what happened was most people are more interested in being part of a profile than a page. The page that just feels like an advertisement or a website, where as I've been saying all along in class, people want to interact with a person, not a business. So what would happen is someone would have a page and a profile, but everyone would always just try to uh, join and be friends with the profile, and then you'd always be faced with the question, well, I don't know this person. Do I I like to friend them on Facebook? Do I really want a stranger seeing pictures of me drinking margaritas at the party last night, Uh, and the people were in an uncomfortable position. Now, subscription changes all that. Subscription is a way that anyone can follow your profile, so you don't have to have the decision as to whether should I befriend this person or not. If you enable subscriptions, anyone can subscribe to your profile. However, as big however, you get to decide what they see. So now everything you post on your profile, you can either choose public or, or friends only. So public means everyone who has subscribed gets to see that. And that's where you should put your business-related things. And then friends only is are the things that only people you've accepted as a friend in your Facebook network uh, can see. And this just makes it a lot easier to manage your business from a profile. I recommend that you start using your own Facebook profile for business purposes and making the public posts one that you're comfortable with anyone who's described. Now that said, we're in an age now where it's so easy to download photos, read photos, that in general your assumption should be that anything you post on Facebook whether it's for public, for the subscribers, or for your friends, will end up on the internet somewhere. I mean, it probably won't happen, but you should assume that it can or will happen. And if you use that filter, you'll be a lot more careful about what you put up. Um, And you know, you still want to put your personality up there, but you just gotta know, you gotta be comfortable that a lot of people are gonna see it. For example, uh, if you look at my photos, I have kind of a mix of photos, um, there's a picture of me speaking at the Commonwealth Club. Um, there's uh, a picture of me and my wife, Jenna, speaking on stage at an IIN conference. Then there's a crazy picture of me in a crazy costume uh, on, at New Year's. Now, some people might not be comfortable posting a photo of themselves in a crazy costume, and that's fine. I respect that. Personally, I've chosen that part of my brand is that I'm a really free-spirited person, Um, I have all sides of myself, the serious side and the silly side, and I'm happy personally to post pictures of me in crazy costumes, and people love it. They love seeing all sides of me, but of course, you have to choose for yourself where those boundaries are for you and what you're comfortable with. Um, So again, um, uh, it's really important to just have a mix of content up there. You don't want to just be blasting ads up there. Um, and you know, ads for your stuff. You want to be really giving people a sense of the, the full range of your passion and your interest, and of course, be sprinkling in content about your business there. So the last point I want to get to is how to create a bio, and this one I think is most relevant to the third service we're going to meet, we're going to talk about, and that's LinkedIn, which is more text-based and is more amenable of having a really long bio. And the main point I want to make about bios, this is for LinkedIn, but really for any anything, your website or Twitter or Facebook, whatever, is that you want to be really specific about actual accomplishments and not have a bunch of vague statements. So I'll often see people have statements such as I am deeply committed to spreading wellness or for ten years I've been on a mission of helping people with their health. You know, those are really vague statements. The, the thing, you, the, the filter that you want to have in your mind is, could anyone say this? And if the answer is yes, then it's not a very strong statement. So, so anyone can say, I'm deeply committed to promoting wellness. Anyone can say, for years I've been on a path promoting health. So it's not a powerful statement. But if you have actual accomplishments, then only the people who have made those accomplishments can say that. So it narrows down the path of who you're competing with. So for example, for me, I say I'm the author of The Power of Eye Contact and and the Education of Millionaires. I'm the only person who has written those books. And furthermore, not that many people have written books, so that sets me apart. Uh, I say that I write at Forbes.com. That's another specific thing that not everyone can say. Uh, My op-ed in the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. So these are specific things. So for you, you really want to think about your PR effort and your media effort in terms of having actual specific accomplishments that you can talk about in your bio. So if you so think about giving talk places that would sound like a good place for you having your bio to have given a talk at, or think about guest posts on blogs. And this is again where that networking comes in. Uh, guest posting is a really powerful way to start getting your brand online. So think about blogs where you can say, I've written a guest post for such and such blog, such and such famous person in your field, a well-known person. So you want to be linking your name to other recognized brands. So I link my name, for example, to Forbes. And I link my name to the New York Times because so I've written for those places. So you want to think in your field, who are the influencers? Who are the superstars in your field? And how can you start connecting with them? Social media is a great way to start doing that. So you want to be out there connecting with people, uh, getting your name linked to other recognized brands, and then putting that in your bio, your specific accomplishment. Uh, another way to have a specific accomplishment is to emphasize actual results. So a lot of you'll see things like, I love helping people lose weight. That's something that anybody could say. So it's not very powerful. But if it's true, and of course it has to be true, you have to lying is a horrible thing to do on social media because you'll get caught. Everything you say has to be true. But let's say it's true that, quote, I have helped 17 clients lose over 246 pounds in total or whatever your metric may be in your field. That's a tangible, specific accomplishment that not everyone can say, only you can say, and that makes it powerful. The purpose of social media is to have people remember and recognize your name and what you stand for. So it's about building awareness. Against that backdrop of awareness, then you can make sales through your website. Social media sets it up so that people know you and trust you and want to do business with you. And I'm just going to leave in conclusion that in order to be, in order to have people remember and recognize your name and what you stand for, you have to be memorable and you have to stand for something. So that social media is really not a game to get involved with if you want to be timid or you want to be bland or you want to kind of fit in and not stick your head out. Social media is a great avenue for really being bold for taking some risk. showing your personality uh, and showing all sides of yourself and standing for something, even if it's a little controversial, making a flash of what you believe in about your field and about health and wellness, and people will take notice. Thank you so much.
1: The Power of Social Media by Michael Ellsberg Social media is a great way to extend your marketing reach and build a following. Why use social media? It has incredible networking potential. Connect with people in your industry who can help boost your career. It employs the surround sound effect. People need to hear your business name at least 7 times before doing business with you. Social media is a great way to get those seven impressions. Surround sound is using multiple channels like Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It allows your name to dominate Google Real Estate. Google Real Estate consists of the search terms related to you, your business, and your area of expertise. If someone reads, if someone searches for your business, you should appear in Google results with different social media profiles to create a web of influence. It engages customers and clients. Social media leads people to your website and increases the likelihood that they'll become paying customers. Why use social media if it doesn't convert paying clients? The process of turning someone into a customer takes time. Social media builds awareness, trust, and credibility. Why use social media under your name, not a business name? People prefer to interact with other people, not faceless businesses. People tend to remember your name, not your businesses. Your professional life lasts as long as you last. You'll always be you, even if your business changes direction. The main thing to keep in mind with social media is that you're showing people aspects of a lifestyle. I am a fair believer that the number one reason people hire is a coach is that in a some sense they aspire to, the, to that coach lifestyle. Your brand Your brand is what people think of when they hear your name. The content you produce become your brand. Using Twitter, retweet interesting tweets related to your field. Engage in public dialogue. Share deep thoughts. Comment on other people's content. Promote your business offers about 10% of the time. Only promote in the context of offering lots of value and content. Using Facebook, subscriptions allow anyone to follow your profile without being your friend. This lets you build a following without being friends with every reader. Subscriptions allow you to decide what your followers get to see versus what your friends see. Use your profile for business purposes by enabling the subscription setting. Provide a mix of content, your full range of passions, not just ads. Subscription is now called followers and be assessed in your profile setting under public posts. Using LinkedIn, avoid vogue statements. Be specific about actual accomplishments. Link your name to other recognized brands emphasize actual results what is the purpose of social media have people remember and recognize your name and what you stand for when people get to know like and trust you you can make sales through your website in order for people to remember and recognize your name you have to be memorable be bold take some risks Show your personality and stand for something people will take notice. Use your blog to build your health coaching practice. Use a blog to demonstrate your expertise and create connections with readers and potential clients. Respond to visitors who comment on your post to continue the conversation get started right away in the blog section of your IAN website. Be sure to highlight the visible button next to your blog page on your website editor. Our blogging platforms you might consider are Blogger, WordPress, Typepad, Tumblr. How to start blogging 1. Create a short title. Capture your reader's attention with a brief and intriguing title. These titles are the entryways for someone to decide whether to read on. 2. Use anecdotes, such as be, inter- be Entertaining Write as if you're talking to a friend Add personal touches and include proof that you walked to your talk to encourage repeat traffic. 3. Respond to Comments Be interactive. If your readers ask questions or comment on your posts, acknowledge them. Give your readers the opportunity to talk to you and each other to make your site more interactive. 4. Be consistent. Post once or twice a week and provide value so that the readers come back. Be relevant to your niche. Write about topics that potential clients will want to read. Keep them coming back for more. 6. Use quality photos or video. Capture your reader's attention with a quality photos. Photos offer a quick visual of what your post is about and help people relate to you. Consider embedding video to break up the text, add visual appeal and engage visitors 7. Blog your other posts Reference old posts in your new posts. Encourage readers to explore what you've already done. Build a thriving practice with your blog and website The benefits of blogging Blogging is one of the best way to drive traffic to your website. Demonstrate your expertise by providing valuable information, engage readers, and inspire action. Consistently maintaining a blog can be a key if you want to create a vibrant online community, grow your list, and build a driving co- coaching practice. Read on to learn our top 5 benefits of blogging. 1. Position yourself as an expert in your niche. Providing relevant, interesting information helps you establish yourself as an authority in your industry. For example, if you target market or if your target market is newly diagnosed celiac who are transitioning to a gluten-free diet and you post great gluten-free recipes all the time. Readers will come to trust you and your website for the latest information and recipes. Don't let the idea of being an authority makes you nervous about starting to blog. It doesn't happen overnight, and you do not have to be perfect. You know a lot more about health and nutrition than most people, and often, just blogging about your own relevant healthy eating experiences can be a great way to connect with your audience and build a following. Write about topics you genuinely enjoy and that energy will translate. 2. Connect with your community. Blogging creates space for conversations between you and your community. It gives you an opportunity to connect with potential clients and get their feedback so you can continue to provide valuable information or info based on what they really want not just what you think they want. To spark these conversations, write like you talk and avoid over will, overly formal language. Let your audience know you get them and that you're not an, on a pedestal. Post questions a few times throughout your post, post and ask your readers to leave comments and share with your friends and family they think would enjoy them. By creating authentic connections, you gain, valuable, you gain valuable insights into what's important to your community so you can speak to their needs and tailor products and services accordingly. 3. Drive traffic to your website More visitors means a larger community and bigger email list to share your expertise. What And sell your products and services too. With your built-in IIN blog, your readers will consistently updated with fresh content without you having to manually do anything. This is a great boost to get your blog off the ground but you'll want to write your own content too. Each of your blog posts is automatically dissected by search engines like Google. The more original content you create, the more website views you get. The higher your ranking will be. Translations. If you're highly ranked bloggers who post great green smoothies recipe, and someone searches green smoothies, you're like most. You're more likely to appear at the top of their search. Then they might click on your website join your first list and even become your client four convert readers into clients now that you you have people visiting your blog how do you turn them into clients tell them what to do gently of course calls to action or cta's are a key way to engage your readers and build your list you might put a CTA is at the end of your blog post asking readers to leave comment with their biggest search struggle. Or you might give readers an incentive by offering a free guide on eating healthy in exchange for their email address. Another example of a CTA and perhaps the strongest is to encourage readers to sign up for a complimentary health history session with you. Through an online booking service like Time Trade or Calendly, better yet, use the Aquity scheduler that already integrated with the Live Edit platform. When you're using CTAs, remember to always provide value first. Consider what you're giving readers rather than what you're getting. Be authentic, not spammy or generic or generic. 5. Expand your reach Social media is a powerful tool to reach new clients and keep your community informed and engaged. By posting links and enticing images to social media, you can easily and efficiently reach more people who need information you're providing. The live edit platform allows you to automatically distribute your blog posts to Facebook and Twitter Circulating your posts or your blog posts to social media gives your follower a chance to like, comment, and share your, share with their friends. Can you see how quickly you can expand your reach this way? You may also choose to, to include buttons or LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Google Plus at the bottom of your each blog post depending on which social platform you use to start up choose just one or two social media platforms to master then expand from there if you wish check out of these support articles for information on how and where to start up your social media and sharing your blog posts creating a post and blog setting social media and your blog to push your post to social media platforms or add like buttons to your post, visit the social, social pad or top under blog setting in your dashboard. To display IIN posts on your blog, choose yes. Ready to share your blog with the world? It's time to get some content up. To take advantage of the monthly IIN blog feed. Be sure that you've turned it on. While we recommend that you don't rely solely on this post, they're great resources and can provide a foundation as you find your voice as a blogger and gain traction. As you begin to create your own blog content, here are things to consider. Make sure the content you're posting is unique, relevant to your health, coaching, business, and current. Some content can be posted anytime because the topics are evergreen, meaning the ideas being shared are relevant regardless of time or other circumstances. All IIN blog posts are designed to be evergreen. Examples of evergreen topics Time management tips Simple way to incorporate more expertise into your day Sneaky ways to get your kids to eat more vegetables and ideas for technology detoxing, you may choose to use include time-sensitive seasonal posts like how to maintain healthy eating during the holidays, how to stay hydrated all summer, or how to stick to your New Year's resolutions. You don't need to post to your blog every day. Just create a realistic goal for yourself and stick to it. You can start by blogging once a week or twice a month and see if it's something you enjoy and benefits you. There are different ways to grow your audience and businesses. Blogging is just one of them. Stick to doing what you love consistently or while challenging yourself. The rest will fall into place.